Hello and welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast with John Cribbs and Christopher Funderberg, co-founders of the Pink Smoke Hi, John. I'm very excited for tonight, aren't you? I'm extremely excited because not only are we talking about one of our all-time favorite books and a book that's new to both of us, we have got a guy here who has a very special insight into these novels. We've got Miami's own Bill Tech. Yes. Hello, gentlemen. I will greet you with the same greeting that... um, Vanjie greets Travis McGee in the book when she says, you know your way around and you seem cool and smart and foxy. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to treat you like Vanjie as broken trash. I want nothing to do with Bill. (laughs) I get a lot of that and I'm used to it. It's okay. I always no. tell people Bill Tech's eyes are darker than Amber. No, what I'm going to say, I will, I'll treat you like Vandy. I'm going to take some creep shots of you for my detective research, quote unquote. <laughs> it's funny because uh, I've been stalked before and I loved it. I, I would pay to have it done again. <laughs> <laughs> we, should ta- we should talk about what we're talking about today, John Cribbs. We've got a double feature of pulp novels of Florida crime fiction, two of the greatest Florida crime offers of all time, probably the two greatest, right? Uh, yeah, I would say. What are we talking about, John? We're talking about Miami Blues, written by the great Charles Williford, and Darker Than Amber, written by John D. McDonald. And these are our each uh, part of a very famous series. Uh, the Darker Than Amber is the seventh Travis McGee novel uh, by John D. McDonald, the famous houseboat living private investigator. And uh, Miami Blues is the first book in the Hoke Mosley series, Williford's uh, the capstone to a great career and what he's probably most famous for, even though they came uh, late in his career. Um, We wanted to have Bill on because to us, uh, Bill is Mr. Miami. He's Mr. 305. He's our favorite Floridian, I think. Uh, and talk about these two crime novels because he had just uh, seen the Darker Than Amber movie and was talking to us about it a little bit, and we sort of had this idea. It is not a, I would say, fully coherent idea apart from these are two books in two of the greatest uh, Florida crime uh, uh, series ever written, and uh, we wanted to talk to to just somebody we associate with Florida and great art. So we wanted to have Mr. Tech on uh, to talk with us. How are how are you doing, Bill? I'm doing good. I'm quarantined. I'm locked up, but I'm still sexy, and I've been enjoying the <laughs> hell out of these books. You guys know I love Wildford and uh, and uh, Miami Blues, and I've been. You know, he used to write these mystery reviews for the Miami Herald, and I've been reading him since I was a kid and a teen. And then I had never read a John D. McDonald novel ever. And oh, I, this is your first one ever. First one ever. And just I had by never... coincidence, I had to read The Executioners last week, so I'm on an inadvertent uh, the move, the book that was made into Cape Fear that John D. McDonald wrote. So I'm on a McDonald kick, like purely by accident. I was blown away. I mean, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I was really blown away. And I, and I, I came, I just was mentioning to, to John that I wanted to read him because I so enjoyed the film Darker Than Amber, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Yeah. Well, what do you think? I mean, this is, you know, we sort of go in a, in a bit of a sprawling freeform sort of way here. You know, I do want to talk to you about what 
why you, what about your favorite depictions of Florida and fiction outside of crime fiction and why you think Miami and those areas lend themselves to crime stories. But we, should we do our, our aperitifs before we get into it, John? Uh, sure. Let's jump into the aperitifs to get them out of the way. Uh, this, of course, is just a artwork, a book or a movie or a, an album, whatever, that we would recommend someone uh, experience before they dive into these books. So let's start with our guest, Mr. Tech. What do you have for your aperitif this evening? Well, I have two. Uh, I have one for each of our of our main courses, um, and uh, the fennel I recommend greatly. <laughs> the <laughs> mean, <laughs> the, delicious. It's delicious. The Mean Season is the 1985 movie uh, directed by Philip Borsos, who did The Gray Fox. Yeah, and it's it's written by Leon Piedmont, and uh, it's based on a novel called In the Heat of the Summer by John Katzenbach. And I'm recommending it because this is what I recommend you watch prior to watching Miami Blues. Because it's very much the Miami that Charles Wildford was living in. It's shot in the Miami Herald newsroom, and he wrote for the Herald, and he spent a lot of time in that newsroom. Yeah, and and it has the bridges and the sense of the heat and that sense of like what it's set in the world that Wildford was writing the novel in. Um, it's a, a thriller and a somewhat routine police thriller. If, if, if uh, it distinguishes itself by being particularly atmospheric for sure. And capturing that rainy season that happens every summer in Miami, but it's not that outstanding in, in those regards, but it does give a sense of the city that, that Wildford was writing in and a city that I grew up in. So I'm recommending that as your aperitif for um, Miami Blues, the, the, the book or the film. Um, and it, it doesn't have and the is polish. It, is, this, is the, this, is like, this is the movie from the 80s, right? 1985, Kurt Russell, Andy Garcia yeah. is a policeman, and Mario Hemingway is his girlfriend, and there's a serial killer. And he's a Kurt's a reporter, and the serial killer's kind of sending him clues and stuff like that. I always enjoy Kurt Russell in the non um, traditional Kurt Russell roles. I think he's sort of underrated as a utility fielder. I think that there's a very specific Kurt Russell star persona, but I think he's also an interesting actor, and I always like seeing him when he's called on to do more than be like gregarious and bigger than life and sort of like. The, the lunk-headed, lovable hero. I like when he steps outside of, of that star persona. It's like he it's perfect casting. You don't know how many guys I've known that worked at the Herald that were a lot like Kurt Russell. They looked like him. He's got the glasses and that look. And the Herald would never hire any Latino writers ever, but they would, <laughs> they would never dream of a, such a thing in Miami. But they would import people uh, from all over to kind of explain us to ourselves. And... Um, <laughs> And, 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 and they were good guys. It wasn't their fault. And I yeah. want to be coming very friendly with a lot of those guys. A lot of those guys really remind me of Kurt in this movie. It's a terrific performance. And uh, he's a lot like a lot, of, a lot of guys I know down here. That, that All of them are pretty fabulous writers, too. From, from Kirk Nielsen on down, I could give you a million names. That sounds like a perfect recommendation. I was telling you when we were talking about this movie recently, Bill, that I have it like still sealed up the DVD upstairs, you know, along with my a random Kurt Russell you know, uh, movies that I bought as part of my collection. And so know, I definitely got to dig into that one. It's a cool movie. I'm not recommending it so much because it's so outstanding. It's a solid thriller. But what I do love yeah. is that that's the world Wilford was in. That's perfect then. 
And I have one for the other book, but do we wait till we get to that other book? That's also world, you know, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, I I think she wrote for a different newspaper. Forgive me if I'm not sure. The crime, the person I associate with- Oh, Edna Buchanan. Edna Buchanan, so much with uh, crime newspaper reporting. In uh, in Florida, and she she didn't she what 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 did, what what should she write for? Did she write? No, for it was the Herald. Okay, it was the Herald. Yeah, she was the, she was the best. There's nobody she's better somebody than that. I can't believe there's not a movie about her. She was such a character and such an interesting person and such a great writer that it just feels like her sensibility as a crime writer uh, and sort of her humor in the macabre is very Williford to me. She's somebody I associate with that very much. She's a brilliant writer. The Herald was just was just flush with great writers then. We had a wonderful movie critic named uh, Bill Cosberg. We had uh, a great architecture critic. Uh, we had a, uh, I mean, literary that that paper was beautiful. And of course, I got dismantled. But it was it was there was a lot of great writers. And Edna was the top of the game. Imagine a newspaper with Edna Buchanan writing crime stories and 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 Charles Walford reviewing mysteries. It sounds so great. And also at an era when. That is an interesting era to write about crime too. Like Miami in the in the late seventies, mid eighties is very. Uh, uh, there's a lot to write about there, and a lot to sort of uh, take apart. <laughs> there, there, there is, an, and and I forgot to mention Dave Barry, Carl Hyacin, who wrote a great, oh, great yeah, crime novel. Yeah, novels. yeah, yeah. Hyacin, yeah. Um, yeah, one of the big Miami uh, fiction writers, absolutely. So yeah, let's go ahead. And, let's go and get Tech Seconds. Uh, I know it's uh, technically going to be matched with Darker Than Amber, but yes, let's go and get your, your second aperitif as well. You'd want from me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So th- to be matched with Darker Than Amber, what I recommend uh, on the left side of the menu is uh, a. I have two recommendations. There's a record album from Jimmy Buffett. You might say, <laughs> "How the hell did Jimmy Buffett make it on the Pink Smoke podcast?" That is <laughs> Not anathema to me. We're giant uh, parrot heads here. I doubt that so sincerely. But there's an album called Coconut Telegraph and it has a song called Incommunicado which has a couple of lines about Travis McGee and it was the first time I ever heard of him. And he references Travis McGee in another song too. But that album has um uh, it's kind of produced in a corny way, but there's uh, it's the kind of album that you would listen to if you lived on a houseboat and you enjoyed the whole top cider, you know, dock me to the pier kind of life that all my compatriots here in Miami do. I don't. I'm an indoor cat. But <laughs> everybody else seems to enjoy the hell out of it. It's funny, though, because I was thinking about how early and darker than Amber, it spends a little time like shitting on the keys. You know what I mean? And I feel like that's a very Floridian thing to do is to like shit on Key West if you're from Miami. I think and especially, you know, Travis, you know, it's in Fort Lauderdale and that slip he was in, I think it was F-18. They did Florida named it like a national landmark. Oh, really? Yeah, it's an official like state landmark. Slip 18 at the Bahia Mar Marina in Fort Lauderdale. And people from Fort Lauderdale, even though it's 20 or 30 minutes away, look at Miami like like they need a passport to come to Miami and they kind of do. And it's, it's my fault. I understand that. Um, that whole generation in your crowd kind of, kind of ruined it. But, um, but it, it I dated it, it, a girl from Boca Raton and we went down Cribs actually came with me to visit her. And I was like, can we go into Miami one day? And she looked like I said, can we go to Los Angeles or New York? She just looked like, 
wait, what do you want? You know, what the fuck are you talking about going to Miami? You know, they, they don't do it. I mean, I could count how many times I've been to Fort Lauderdale. I'm 52 years old. I've lived here my entire life. Fort Lauderdale is maybe 20 to 30 minutes away. I've been there maybe 12 times <laughs> to see so concerts. Wow. And I leave right away. It's two different places. And a lot of that we'll get into later, you know, as we get into the, 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 the racial makeup uh, and the ethnic makeup of the different areas yeah. and how they're treated in the books. But um, it's a really, it's a different place. And I think people from Fort Lauderdale, especially in the sixties and early seventies, looked at Key West as like just this haven for hippies and, yeah. and, 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 and freaks. And, and Lauderdale was like a buttoned up kind of swingery good time. You know, it's a little more of the playboy philosophy. Yeah, you know, a little bit. And and the other thing, if you can't listen to the Buffett album, I'm still going to stick with that flavor. I recommend Tales from Margaritaville, a book of short stories uh, that Jimmy wrote. That's pretty interesting. Good. Yeah, interesting. What kind of what? But what is it like? Tales from Margaritaville? Is it crime? Is it? No, it's 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 like is it just know, like stories about getting laid in a hammock? Like what are these? What is it about? No, it's it's kind of like um, you know uh, expatriates and and people that kind of live uh, close to the islands, near the water, that's their, kind of their driving thing. And the kind of a, I wouldn't say it's, 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 they're outlaws, but they're not committing any crimes. They're outlaws and just that they're trying to escape the rat race somehow and have as many drinks as possible, wear as many Hawaiian shirts as possible, and do as little work as possible. Have <laughs> as many uh, cheeseburgers in so, paradise so as possible. So the real, uh, the real Chris Funderburg types is what you're trying to tell me here. <laughs> Listen, man, it's worked for me as well. I, I'm still, you know, I have that goal. But so it's, it's, a really, it's a really beautifully written book. There's a particular story called um, I Wish Lunch Could Last Forever. And it's kind of romantic and it's got these little short stories. It's cute. I mean, if you get it, like on the cover Jimmy's there with a parrot on his shoulder. You want to stab yourself in the cranium. <laughs> but, but if you I'm tear off the cover on the subway, showing the cover off, unashamed. Can I say a quick New York Jimmy Buffett story? And you can. Yes. I don't know if you guys do. want to edit. I, I have a shirt that I very unironically bought. It's like a hoodie, and it's a, it's got a big old marlin. And I bought it at Margaritaville. I stayed there with yeah. the girl that I was seeing. We stayed there for a weekend. We had such a good time. I said, I'm going to buy some swag. And I bought yeah. this shirt. And the Marlin is made up of all these weird little Jimmy Buffett things, like a pineapple and a salt shaker and a flip-flop. And so anyway, I'm wearing this ridiculous shirt. Unironically, I'm in New York City yeah. this summer shooting this documentary. I get on this, you know, maybe 30-something-year-old woman gets on the elevator with me. She's looking at the shirt and she's like, you're wearing a Margaritaville shirt. And I'm like, yes, I am. And I'm wearing it unironically. <laughs> He's like, is that right? And I'm like, yes, it is. I, I stayed at one of his hotels. I had a great time and I bought a shirt and I'm wearing it in New York. Yeah. She's like, I've never seen someone wear that shirt out. And I'm like, how do you even know what this is? She's like, I'm the director of marketing for Margaritaville. <laughs> <laughs> i swear to you that's a true story that's amazing did you get surely you must have parlayed that into like gift certificates for conch fritters at margaritaville in times square <laughs> she smiled and got off the elevator quickly she was like this oh, is no. like this is like mike pence at applebee's i need to get out of here asap yeah this is like <laughs> Is this guy here to see me? Is this the, just, did the big Margaritaville fan find out where the director of Margaritaville's marketing lives? Oh, I thought she was just like, this guy's, a, you know, nobody goes to New York and wears a shirt like that. This guy must be a, a total weirdo. So she got <laughs> <it>. <laughs> 
That's an excellent story, sir. All right, it's a little off. Hopefully, it's on because it's houseboats. <laughs> no, it's houseboats. No. This is this is this is the laid back South Florida episode of the pink smoke the relaxed fit episode of the pink smoke you know that mcdonald book really takes some tangents so i feel okay with it oh my god that book it's you're 80 pages in before you're like oh there's gonna be a plot in this thing (laughs) oh you're going you're headed somewhere with this um john i'll do my aperitif next because i think it's not the most uh exciting or interesting one but what i was thinking in terms of of crime fiction uh you to get in sort of the mindset leading into this it's something from uh uh, almost two decades before the travis mcgee book the fourth bogey and bacall pairing the final feature film pairing of them key largo by the great john houston which is a um movie about uh a a war hero who returns to he's not from florida he sort of uh wandered his way down to florida thinking maybe he'll get a job or boat or something and he goes to see the wife and father of a buddy of his who was killed in the war and just sort of pay his respects to them and talk to them a little bit about about uh, uh his friend from the war and when he gets to the hotel there's a hurricane rolling in and and everything is cleared out except for six uh, men that are very unsavory and very not happy to see them. And it turns out that they are a, a bunch of gangsters who have been exiled to Cuba. John Rocco, played by the great, great Edward G. Robinson, who have snuck in to uh, sell a briefcase full of counterfeit cash uh, to a buyer uh, from Miami, I believe he's from. And the hurricane has sort of thrown their plans off a little bit. They're they're intentionally there out of season so no one will be around and um it's one of those movies it's like the house by the edge of the park or um uh or red rider that's just about some psychopaths torturing innocent people for uh, for an hour and a half and just a bunch of people being trapped in the in a room it was based on a play apparently that i know very little about and it's very good it's john houston it's florida crime fiction there's some location photography although the majority of it is inside the place and it's you know it's a classic you should see Key Largo and, and get your mind set right for this. Well, it's an amazing movie. Houston did a great job. And yes. I've, I've had the pleasure of watching it. I'm not bullshitting you. I don't want to top everybody with my story to top that. Yeah. But we, we were waiting for a hurricane. And my, yeah. my, my ex-brother-in-law was like, put that movie in. And it was cool. It was raining outside. We're watching Key Largo inside. Yeah. And it was freaking cool. That sounds awesome. I went, one of the first serious girlfriend I ever had, like introduce a girlfriend to my parents in college. I took her down to Key Largo uh, to go scuba diving. And it was like the most miserable vacation of my life. It was one of those like, we, I should have known this thing was dead in the water right then. Just like how uncomfortable the entire experience was for, for just all of it. But I was like, I was probably like 21 on that, on that trip. It sounds like something from that movie, The Deep. And we stayed in a hotel that was very much like the hotel in Key Largo. It was one of those big old uh, Florida sort of boarding house type hotels. And it's funny, I was watching it uh, uh, 
because it was on, I thought of this because it was on Turner Classic Movies a couple days ago. And I was watching, I was like, ah, there's my aperitif. This is a good pick. And I was watching it and I was thinking, man, everybody's great in this, except for uh, this lady with this terrible drunk acting, this actress, Claire Trevor. She's just so fucking bad in this movie. She's nearly ruining it. Then she has that scene where she sings and that's great. And it's like, oh, that's a great moment where uh, Edward G. Robinson forces her to sing for a drink. She's alcoholic and she's like on the verge of being psychologically shattered. And uh, that's great, but she's just, goddamn, she sucks. Everything else is pitch perfect. (laughs) And then I looked it up and it's like, oh, she won an Academy Award for this? This is the one thing that won an Oscar for this movie. I should have known. I just should have known this is the way the world works. She should have looked up uh, Travis McGee's guy who taught him how to act drunk. <laughs> exactly. Travis mm-hmm. McGee's got a guy. He's got a guy for everything. He's one of very Frank Reynolds-esque. <laughs> it, but you're right that it's amazingly directed to, a lot of times I was watching it and thinking, you know, this is obviously based on a piece of theater and it can't get away from that, but he's just such a smart director at how to frame things intimately, how to just make the space uh, expand and contract and break off pieces of it and break off characters and direct your attention and just create intimacy, create tension, just always a two shot here, a close up here, a wide shot here, a scene entirely in like a widescreen three that's all three heads in the frame. It's just such great directing. It's just such phenomenal directing. It's masterful, and you really talk about atmospheric. You really feel like, oh, yeah, they're, they're shooting. There's a hurricane coming. It's yeah. beautiful. And the way he directs Edward G. Robinson, Robinson's phenomenal. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because that that was like uh, at an era where Edward G. Robinson was still the bigger star than Bogart or Bacall. I, I believe he got top billing in the film. And it's it's funny to sort of remember <laughs> that era. I think history remembers Bogart as being the far bigger star. But you go back and you watch it and Edward G. Robinson... It, like it's all Bogart can do to not get blown away by that hurricane. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's, uh, yeah, I'm going to say yours is probably better than mine, Chris, but I'm going to go ahead and say what my aperitif is. It's the gritty tale of two Newark based fishing enthusiasts who travel to the Everglades only to run afoul of Florida's criminal underworld. I speak of course of Jill Mazursky and JJ Abrams gone fishing. <laughs> okay. But not you really. Know. But not really. You're that not. A, you're not sorry. picking the. Uh, that was a great. <laughs> I didn't. Re- that has uh, co-directors. Really? No, no, they're the writers. Oh, okay. Neither of them actually directed it, but it was it was Paul Mazursky's daughter and J.J. Abrams credited with the screenplay of Gone Fishing. Interesting. Are you a big fan of that film? I just feel like I needed to bring it up. <laughs> um, uh, Bill Tech's not a fan. Actually, I'm wondering if uh, if I'm going to offend Bill with this choice or not. But this, I'm unoffendable. Think, unoffendable. All right. Well, this this this. I don't know how Florida residents feel about this movie, but I think for people who know so little about Florida like I do, this is what Florida was for me for so long. And anytime, even thinking about these novels and sort of the the, the portrait they paint of them, I'm always going to think of wild things when I think of Florida. You know, <laughs> just its use of Coral Gables and uh, Key Biscayne and and Lauderdale, Miami. You know, it just has all of that that vibe the great john mcnaughton film right just to to john mcnaughton of course john mcnaughton matt dillon kevin bacon nev campbell denise richards um bill murray 
Yeah, Bill Murray. Yeah, Bill, yep. Bill Ghost busting ass Murray. Well, it's funny because Mo, uh, I keep wanting to call him Hope Mosley for some reason tonight. Wilford um, didn't write much about the Miami elite, you know, like this movie is about these, you know, uh, rich people having rich people problems and you know backstabbing each other. Uh, but Bill Murray, the the lawyer character, he's a little bit Wilford esque, I think. You know, sort of the people kind of scr- uh, scrubbing at the bottom, the, the bottom feeder characters who maybe you know have a little bit more to them than you would assume based on their station in life. And so when I think about that, yeah, the bottom feeder is not for ability, but for focus and drive. Yeah, the people who could the people be who great, but are just somehow fine with sleeping in the back of a. Chinese restaurant as their as their home you know what I mean the people who have motivations you know who actually maybe will desire what it is will discover what it is that they want and had find a purpose as opposed to you know people who are just sleeping around behind each other's backs and uh going for the uh, you know the, the daily tanning and hanging out on on fancy yachts all day sort of the you know the the higher crust of the the Florida set that a lot of people think of people looking in Boca Raton, for example. Um, I, I think that's a great point about the Wilfred S character. I know, man, I love that movie. It's super sexy too. I oh, mean, good. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. It's so sexy. And everyone that I know, Floridians, we all went for that movie because it shoots the, 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 the state looking so beautiful. Yeah. And it really does look rare. Great. That, yeah, it's rare that we get to see our, our city, I mean, our state looking so beautiful. I, everyone I know dug it. Yeah. That's good to know. Naughton's a really interesting director as well, and he certainly comes at it with a, a perspective. That movie is is way smarter than, I have no idea what its reputation is. Everybody at this point knows that's a good movie, right? Does I hope that so. movie still have a bad reputation as, like, you know, trash? Or- I don't think I've heard anybody ever say they don't like it. You know, or yeah. say, what are you talking about wild things for? Um, but yeah, it's sort of almost like an, an Oz-like portrait of Florida that it is. Often wonder if, you know, locals think, ah, this is nothing like. What I, you I, I, I dug it a lot and I love, and we don't, you know, I think when we look at Florida movies, we're just, we're just happy to be represented. We're just happy to be in the, in the conversation. <laughs> you know, we're not like, ah, oh, it's not very accurate. We're like, oh, hey, look, look, I know that's 7-Eleven. But, um, <laughs> um, but what, just to tie it in, maybe that's good for you when you're editing. And I love Nev Campbell. I wish she was in more movies. Yeah, me too. I, she's, she's somebody who uh, always felt to me like she was uh, done uh, – a disservice somehow by being forced into sort of traditional leading lady roles like Hollywood never figured out what to do with her, you know? Yeah. And she seemed like a pretty legit person. Like she wasn't going to play all the games, you know? Yeah. And that she wasn't going to try and star in like some rom-com or something. Maybe she's in them. Who the hell knows? It's not <laughs> like I'm a Nev Campbell excerpt. Somebody's going to chime in and be like, she's actually in like eight, dude. You just didn't see him. Because- <laughs> You are definitely in the, the best monk. Robert Altman film of the last 15 years of his career. Oh my God. I didn't so see that. It's but I really good. Company. She's a trained dancer and she's phenomenal in it. I would love to see that. It's also the movie I like Franco the most in, James Franco. He has oh, yeah. like a great scene making her breakfast. Anyway. No, I'd love uh, to see that. Let us, shall we just keep, I don't know why I'm going a mile a minute here, I guess, because it's two books. Let's talk about Miami Blues first, and then we'll talk about Darker Than Amber after, um, and see if we can come up with some 
themes, attachments, some ideas, Mr. Biltek, about why you think Florida is so attracts this kind of crime fiction more than any place I can can think of. You basically have New York, Los Angeles, and Miami. Those are like the locuses of crime fiction in some way. But we have the better crime fiction because we have beaches and palm trees and an ocean right there. And we have a bunch of freaking criminals. Yes, places to dump bodies, as we'll see in Darker Than Amber, but also the swamps and the mangroves and all of that. Got into deal. Their parents got became drug dealers because it was so common. Yeah. So you'd see like the family down the street would all of a sudden they were driving new cars and they were redoing the porch and they were redoing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the, my dad, you know, may rest in peace. Was a was a he sold office furniture. He was straight arrow. Yeah. You know, my mom was a was a property manager. But they but they, but it was around us. It was around us everywhere. And like all those kind of cliches um, about Miami are true you know that it was it was the wild west for a little while i think because uh kind of the we there was an immigrant or uh, population right uh, i'm 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 half cuban american half uh, yeah. uh, uh, old american or russian jews but yeah. for whatever reason that immigration i think people just kind of relaxed a little bit like oh that's Miami don't worry about them they're doing their own thing and I think that was an opportunity for a lot of risky business and yeah. just our proximity to everything so it, it lent itself to uh, the drug trade and then yeah. crime just kind of took off from there well it's interesting because what because the Mariel boat lift that's like 1980 right it is 1980. Um, and that's right when you have the same explosion in the in the cocaine trade in the United States when the CIA starts helping us bring all of that stuff into the United States at virtually the same time and uh, and a lot of obviously connections with the uh, uh, Latin American communities, especially uh, in the South were tied to this drug trade as it was coming up from Colombia. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we were we were a big part of it. And and I think the fact that Miami, you know, dealt with and processed, you know, 125,000 people or 200,000 people in in Mariel, um, you know, when you're busy processing people and and making new citizens and all that, you yeah. know, it's easy for stuff to kind of slip between the cracks. And we also had a we had race riots because there was a there was a, an African American gentleman that was murdered, and the, the the cops. And in 1980, we had the McDuffie riots, based on the unjust killing of this gentleman, and then the cops were let go. They didn't, you know, they didn't get the proper sentences. Yeah. And, and then you had Mariel, and then you had the drug trade exploding at the same time. And so it was, it was a kind of a, a, a sexy place. If you were going to do, if you were a criminal-minded person, there was enough going on that people would be distracted, and you could slip through the cracks, and a lot of people did. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. And also just as, as far as routes are concerned for narco trafficking that coming up, you know, from the, the northern uh, borders of South America, it's easier to go to South Florida than to go directly to New York or even to Texas, you know. So just as far as logistics, it's someplace was going to be 
that down there was going to be the locus of it. And, you know, if not Miami, maybe it would have been Tampa. I mean, who the fuck knows what would have happened? I'm surprised there aren't more films about it and more books about it that are, that are written from, you know, all different perspectives because it, it, it was pretty major. I mean, it really kind of fueled our economy for a long time and allowed for a lot of very rapid growth in our city. It's interesting. It's interesting. It's obviously, you know, tragic. I think it goes without saying that I'm not painting with a broad brush, right, about that, about the nature of the uh, Latino communities in Miami, that it's all drug-based. You know, my ex-wife is Colombian, and one of the things that always bums Colombian out, if you talk to Americans and you say you're Colombian, the first thing they're like, ah, cocaine? Ah, ah? And, like, they are just so fucking sick of it. And it's obviously, like like her nephew like some 15 year old kid that like this is 30 years in the fucking past you know when escobar is you know fucking dead you know what i mean it's just like he doesn't want to hear about it anymore it's got nothing to do with him you know no listen i don't I, it's clear that you're not doing that and it's it's just what happened in miami and that trade was exploited by certainly the latino population but also a lot of enterprising american people that were like you know what oh, man, no question. we can do it the, the cocaine cowboys were white guys you know like the biggest the big the big uh uh people who facilitated the transportation of it were were white guys the, that pair of dudes yeah yeah and you had sal and willie uh, willie falcone and sal magluda who were like the big drug dealers you know um and and that's another interesting tale i mean there's a lot around it i think that williford and i don't know if you want to talk about the plot before but i he peppers the novel with all these really interesting um uh, factoids about what's going on in miami yes it was written in 84 but stuff that had started in 1980 yeah no yes that's exactly that's it that's one of the things i really like about the novel that the movie which is a movie i adore sort of has to drop a lot of stuff just so it can get through its basic story. It can't take those digressions. And the plot of the book is this, is that we open with uh, Freddie Fringer Jr., a.k.a. Herman Gottlieb, arriving in Miami from parts unknown. And he uh, heads into the airport and is bothered by a Hare Krishna and uh causes the Hare Krishna to have a heart attack by bending his finger back so far that it, it snaps and uh, all the way back. And because in the book- Cause him to like, die of shock. Yes. Yeah. If you have seen the, the uh, movie, uh, you know Alec Baldwin plays Freddie Fringer. In the book, he's described repeatedly as a meathead and a muscle, uh, muscle head and all of that sort of thing, as somebody who has gotten incredibly ripped in prison and is just so strong that he can grab someone's hand and just kill them by snapping the fingers. Like you get an impression of a very powerfully overwhelming huge dude in the book. And from there, Hoke Mosley and his partner uh, are assigned the case uh, to figure out why the Krishna has been killed. And they begin tracking Freddie Fringer uh, and find him uh, through a coincidence that he has uh, uh, shacked up with a prostitute uh, and played named Susan Wagner. What's wrong with Pepper? And they <laughs> track him through that and Fringer gets the drop on Hoke Mosley, beats him up, steals his badge, his gun, even his false teeth. Hoke Mosley has had his bad teeth removed by a forensic dentist and replaced with dentures. So um, 
uh, uh, Fringer takes all of this and then starts pretending to be a police officer, starts committing crimes at first with sort of the badge as a cover, but then at some point makes a strange shift where uh, he's going after criminals and then sort of almost believing he's a cop in some totally psychotic way as Hoke is tracking him uh, and trying to uh, bring him back under control. Well, let me uh, first ask Bill Tech, um, because one thing I think that's really appealing about this book is the outsider perspective of uh, Miami. Uh, when Junior comes over, he's been in prison in, in California. And as soon as he's released, he basically jumps on a plane. He mugs a few guys, steals some credit cards, and then jumps on a plane to go to Miami. And so most of the book is kind of appreciating the weird geography and the weird culture of Miami through this guy who doesn't know anything about it, you know, doesn't understand doesn't that Miami. doesn't know what Lake Okeechobee is. He doesn't understand that Miami and Miami Beach are two different places. And, you know, uh, that's a completely understandable mistake. But I think sort of the appeal of Florida and sort of how it kind of ties into, you know, these crime stories is that anyone can feel like they're in paradise all the time, right? I mean, anyone can go down to the beach and feel like, they're living a life of, of leisure, even if they, you know, are completely penniless and, you know, not one of the big, not hobnobbing with any of the rich people out on the boats or anything. Yeah. And I think that Junior is drawn to this life because he lives outside of the law and thinks that he's entitled to pretty much anything that he can think of, that he thinks that making money is no problem. You just go and you beat up a mugger and you steal their, yeah. their cash. Um, it's so. also Miami as a place, as a, as a tourist place, uh, it invites outsiders. It is a city that invites outsiders to it constantly and wants to be full of outsiders at a lot of the time that as somebody like me who's only ever been to Miami as a tourist, my impression is the places I go is that there are a lot of tourists around, you know? Sure. Um, and so I think that that's another interesting thing uh, about Miami Blues uh, the book is the idea that there are people from parts unknown always coming there and the city is inviting it in some way. Yeah. And I think a lot of the comedy that Wilford, you know, uh, gets from the book is from this complete confusion of geography for somebody who's not used to it and someone who's trying to, you know, stake a claim here and kind of just try figuring it all out. So tech, that's what I wanted to ask you was, um, do you think that that kind of ties into, these crime stories, this, you know, just the weirdness of Miami, I guess, that, that Wilfred obviously is obsessed with. And having Hoke Mosley as a character who is a Miami native and kind of explains all of these sort of weird cultural oddities. That's what's so exciting about the book is that Williford takes you in through the perspective of a Miamian and he may not have been from Miami, but he certainly soaked it up and got his bona fides and was in Spanish. We would say he's a platanal. It's he's uh, that's uh, that's like when you take um, a plantain and you soften it up <laughs> in a way uh, so that, you know, you could have this kind of rum covered plantain. Well, that's what Williford was. I mean, he, he ingested the city and wrote about it so that anybody that was reading it that spent time in Miami, whether you were Cuban or Colombian or, you know, born and raised here three, four generations, um, which I still, I know people that, that have been here, you know, who, who would, yeah. my buddy's first sheriff of Dade County was his great grandfather, you know, and old school Miami's like that. Everybody that read it knew they were reading the work of a true Miami. And so there were like all these little references that, that, clued you into the 
specific weirdness of Miami. As you say, there are people from all over. There's a great part towards the beginning of the book where he goes to the steakhouse and he talks about how the menu's in Portuguese and the, he goes to the Brazilian steakhouse, the menu's in Portuguese and the Costa Rican waiter comes over and you know, that's Miami and all the references to like Miami Dade where Williford taught yeah. and where, where I went to college. Um, you know, the, Miami what Dade. Do you, what do you think he has uh, his thoughts on having Susan Wagner, the dim-witted prostitute, be a student there? How well, does that make you feel about your alma mater? Oh, that's, you know, listen, there's a lot of Susan Wagners that I went to school <laughs> with. And my, the reason that Miami Dade grew so much and it became the number one community college in, in America uh, was because you had all these these immigrants and exiles that there was their first generation to go to college and they yeah. were like, Oh, we can go there and we can get a Pell grant. We don't even have to pay it back. Okay. Let's, you're going to go to college. And so you had all these first generation, not only Cubans and not only different Latinos when I was growing up at Haitians and Jamaicans and all kinds of people from the Caribbean. And it made the college grow. It's now no longer community college, it's just college. But what you, what you wound up with, the joke was it was 13th grade. Everybody would say, oh, you're going to go to 13th grade. <laughs> but it, 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 it taught me to, to, to write. It taught me. It was, it was a great school with great people. Yeah. Uh, this guy, David Schroeder, who was my teacher, uh, they brought Dave Marsh in to talk about anti-censorship. And I can still tell you the names of people that opened my mind to writing, Paige Cubs yeah. and David Schroeder. They were great teachers there. And if you were interested, you were going to, get right past the Susan Wagners yeah. and get the, and get the knowledge. And a lot of people did. So I didn't mean to go off on Miami Dade, but it, it, it is, it's, you can't imagine how on point his description is of everything that's going on at Miami Dade. Just like when he talks about, about, um, uh, the, the dolphin expressway and all these little kind of, you know, details that he puts into the book that really lets you know, like this guy is a Miami owner when they, when the Cuban cab driver forces a Toyota and cuts off all the other lanes. <laughs> I mean, that's Miami and the callousness of people when, when they're at the airport and those two kind of jackass tourists are laughing at the Krishna as he's having his yeah. seizure and they grab his wig and they toss it over. Like it's on point. I mean, there's a brutality to it. I, I think Wilford's wife said, um, I have to read it. Uh, I think she said his widow, Betsy, she, I think she said uh, that his thing he would tell aspiring writers was just tell the truth and they'll accuse you of writing black humor. <laughs> That's an awesome quote. And, 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 and he was just so truthful. His, his kind of like roughness is something that a million guys I've talked to at marinas and bars and just spend 50 years here getting your head pounded in by just the, this combination of ambition and stupidity and heat <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and, and a kind of a lack of the law, which is a little bit lax. Yeah. And you wind up with a crazy town that where crazy shit happens. And I, I, I love, you know, certain aspects of my community. But I also recognize that when you're talking about uh, Medicare fraud and when you're talking about, you know, pharmaceutical fraud and insurance fraud, it's here. Yeah. I mean, it's just prone to that kind of shit. And, and, and I'm a lifelong Miamian and it's, it's part of who we are, but it's, it's just a fascinating place. And I think he, he nails it as a, as a, as a native writing about a foreigner. 
So he doesn't write from a perspective of, of, of a person who doesn't know Miami. He writes from a person that knows it and looks at Junior uh, in a, uh, as, a, as a silly person. That was a yeah. long rant, and I apologize. No, it's, it's fun. great. It's funny. It's also, I was, it was making me think about the thing that I really like in it that I associate with Miami. And when I first went down there, having read the book and seen the movies, is the hotel that Hope Mosley lives in, which are those sort of beach adjacent old um, hotels that have been turned into like living houses. And he lives in one that's full of senior citizens. And he's been uh, able to live for free because the owner who is deaf and and the desk man uh, wants a cop in there because the demographics are changing. So all of those older people uh, that were as much as Miami before the uh, influx and changes in demographics in the 70s and 80s had been like, a lot of other places in Florida where a bunch of old people lived. Miami in particular uh, had a very strong Jewish community uh, that was now getting very old by the 70s and 80s. And his description of that hotel, when I went down there, I was like, holy shit, those hotels are everywhere. Like that thing he describes in the book, which I thought was kind of fanciful, like place that Hoke Hoke Mosley lives was like, Oh, this you throw a rock and you'll hit one. They're just these these places are everywhere down here. They're, every, that, they're oh, everywhere. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Johnny. They are oh, please, everywhere. Bill, go right no, ahead. No, that's it. That's it. Just that they're oh. everywhere. It's true. <laughs> no, I was just going to say another observation uh, that I think in Miami Blues specifically, but also kind of pertains a little bit to Dark Than Amber, is that all the characters in these books, the ones who are really savvy and are, have lived in Miami or in Florida and in Lauderdale they've got an operation going, right? They've got like something that they are a part of. And of course, most of them are criminal ventures. Um, some of them are small time, like Pablo, the the pimp living at the hotel and his setup with the, the other cop uh, in Miami Blues. And then others are these big cons- uh, high crime conspiracies, like the one in uh, Dark Than Amber. Yeah. But these guys seem to kind of survive based on these operations that they've set up and kind of in this sort of lawless sort of uh, society that they're in, they've kind of figured it out. They kind of figure out how to survive and how to kind of profit and make their area work for them. And I think when, you know, characters like Susan Wagner or, or Junior come in and they don't have, that um, they're not willing to like meet up with people and make organizations and kind of set themselves in they're they're ultimately doomed because they don't really have that to survive on just really on their own yeah yeah that's certainly true that's interesting now i'm just thinking about other stuff that that's like miami specific from the book that even you don't get in the movie is um coral gables my sense of what coral gables is i had never heard of it before I read Miami Blues. You know, I just never even heard the phrase Coral Gables. And you don't get much of a sense in the movie. It's like they're going to move to some sort of white picket fence suburb. But his descriptions of the history of Coral Gables and those sort of like, he describes them as sort of like green water uh, canal pit things that these communities are built around that look very nice sort of from aerial photographs but if you get close they sort of smell bad and you realize you can't swim in them right and that's what coral gables is like built around is uh the sort of impression of like oh this looks very nice and then you look close at all and you're like wait this is gross and that is the sense that williford gives you a lot of miami of the architecture and the people and and sort of you know, one of the running themes of like 
the the dumbbell killers and like the aerobics and stuff and the attractiveness of the people in the book and you get a little closer and there's a lot of unattractiveness in it and I think that that's something that he conveys very well is that like the sex and glitz and glamour of Miami is you know has a has a uh, a rancid element to if you stand too close to it yeah, the apartment, uh, Susan's apartment in, by the Everglades as well, where they talk about the developers being pissed off that they can't continue developing without draining the water, <laughs> you know, just... Well, I'll tell you a story about that. And I lived yeah. in two, two... I lived in this... Uh, a, <laughs> I should go backwards. My mom and I bought a house from a developer, and the, the guy, <laughs> he went to jail for <laughs> cocaine. <laughs> and the rest of the development never got finished. And, uh, and, and it was literally like the last stop before chrome before the everglades before the the miccosukee indian reservation and yeah and and chrome and it was like because that's where the, the houses were inexpensive and we were able to get one but then the guy had to go away for a little while um similarly <laughs> before that we lived in an apartment building that i believe is what wilford based uh the development that she lives in it was called it's still called the bridges and it was in kendall drive in 152nd and it was literally the last stop of miami before you went to like east naples and it was so far out there and i bet you 20 bucks that 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 charles took a ride out and said who the f lives out here yeah. and, it, <laughs> and it was and we, you know and we were and it was ridiculous but th these they got it so right that's the part that the movie did get right is they 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 really got that right and it's a strange city you do have this very glitzy beautiful people it's very sexy but then you have a, a lawlessness and a, and a, and an unaccountability uh, and for me, this isn't really brought up that much in the books, but the saddest thing is there's no like sense of history, you know, and people, um, because it's a, it's a, it's an immigrant community that is kind of passing through and people lay down roots, but we really don't think about the history of, of Miami very much. Yeah. Or it's people coming down there to die, right? It's yeah. little people from different parts of the world coming down there to finish up their, their last years. You know, what's funny, Chris mentioned those hotels and they made a movie about it. I think it's called The Last Resort. There's a documentary yes. about it that came out Yes, this year. that's the only reason I know about any of this. I should have, I should have thought of that movie. I, I, <laughs> I think the guy that made that movie is the director of the Cinematheque, I think, or the, or the O Cinema. It's the guy that runs O Cinema, which is an indie yeah. cinema down here. And it's and he has a co-director. And um and I should I I I, I it's should It's a know fascinating him. movie. It's full of unbelievable footage. It's one um, of those movies that's just like built on great footage. And my grandma lived in one of those buildings, my Jewish grandma, my my Cuban grandma. Yeah. Who uh, but my Jewish grandma lived in one of those buildings and it was and then after South Beach, you know, when once, you know, the, the, the homosexual population discovered South Beach, really made it happen, made it the funnest place to go, just beautiful stores and great discos and made it amazing. And that's, that's kind of the scene that I grew up in clubbing. You know, even if you weren't gay, you went to that scene because it was yeah. so cool. It was so fun. We weren't going to go to some stupid jock club. You went to the cool place. Yeah. And so that was great. And that made South Beach really kind of the property values went up and everything. And those old people, that kind of changed. So South Beach is, they'll, they'll tell you, hey, South Beach is no longer like that. And, and they would lead you to believe that, hey, South Beach is no longer like that. So that's all gone. Well, not really. It just kind of moved off South Beach into North Beach. So <laughs> it stops at 29th, but from 29th to 100 and something, you've got 
hundreds of rows of still these old hotels. And now these old people kind of share space with a lot of like recent immigrants. Like there's little Argentina has five blocks and little Venezuela, little Caracas has five blocks and so forth. But you know, it's, that's Miami. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. It's a city. And it's funny that you say there's no sense of history. I realize that my vision of Miami is built in the eighties. You know, like my, what's the history of Miami? It goes back to like 1980, you know, that's like my sense of what it is. And then obviously some information from the last resort, but I think it's a city that changed so much at a certain point um, and had such a huge demographic shift that connecting it to the, what it used to be feels virtually impossible as opposed to a place like where I'm, I'm from and grew up in Louisiana around New Orleans, where New Orleans is a continuous story dating back, you know, to, to the 1700s. You have a very coherent story of what that city is for centuries. But Miami feels like it changed like in a snap. You know, and it continues to change. You know, when I was growing up, you know, um, you were it was ninety percent. If you were Latino, chances were you were Cuban. It was like ninety-two percent. Yeah, and and literally just and even when I started Generation India Magazine in nineteen ninety-six, and literally twenty years later, it's fifty percent Cuban, and the other fifty percent, if you're huh. Latino, you could be from Venezuela, Colombia, Argentina, you know, etc. Because you know, and, or Nicaragua. I like how you said uh, etc. with the accent, just because you I were did, on a roll. It was a great SNL skit where like Jimmy Smith oh, yeah. is in an Oh, want some burritos? You know, it annoys me when people do it. So I don't know why I'm doing it to you guys. I'm like, these guys are. We had a friend in college who was like the the definition of like, uh, like a woke liberal type, and he would go out of his way to pronounce foreign word correctly. And the class just died once when he said the movie Casablanca. Oh no, that's really good. That's really good. Just, just oh, brought the house down, and he was not. not happy. That's awfully good. It must be some unconscious NPR gene that I have in my head that I'm like, well, these are my white friends. I better do that Latino accent. <laughs> I know that exact sketch because you know I um, learned all of my Spanish very late in life, so I never saw it written down. I only heard it pronounced. So I didn't have Americanized versions of the Spanish words. So I would pronounce them how I heard them. But when I was around white people, they would be like, whoa, you're putting on the accent. I don't know what the word is. I don't know what it looks like to do like an American translation. I only know how it sounds. So I'm doing an impression of how it sounds. (laughs) That's very good. I like to, you know, some words we, we never think about them in Spanish. I'll say, I'm going up to Boca. And it yeah. never occurred to me that that's a Spanish thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, I should mention Kareem uh, Tabsht and Dennis Scholl. Kareem runs O Cinema, and Dennis used to run the um, uh, Knight Ritter Foundation, which gives a lot of grants yeah. for the arts and stuff. Those are the guys that made The Last Resort. I should give them a shout. Cool, man. And it's a movie worth seeing. Definitely, definitely check it out, especially in the context of, of Miami history. Um, the changes from the movie to the book, the movie is one of my very favorite movies of all time. It's, it's like so personally meaningful to me. I got a Tony Stella poster of it up on my wall. Tony Stella, we had been talking to him and I was complaining about how there's no 
good art for that movie that every poster for that movie sucks and he did a poster and sent it to oh uh to john God. for my birthday that is Can beautiful what a that's a beautiful that's who that guy is he's the most beautiful guy and man. my and my son loves it because it says shit happens when you party naked on it so he's always like <laughs> it happens when you party naked movie when he <laughs> when he talks about it you got to send me a picture of that poster because i'm a fan of tony's and of course i love that movie yeah but the one the book I think the movie hues very close to the book. I would say that the movie reduces the nastiness of the book a little bit, that the book has a harder edge than the movie. The only um, major change that when I, when I read the book that I really miss is that in the, in the movie, the Hare Krishna is just like a, um, it's just like a guy in the book. It explains that the Hari Krishnas were a panhandling scam, essentially that used uh, the religious exemption for begging laws and for panhandling laws to get around it, that you would declare yourself a Krishna. So you could go into airports and parks and continue panhandling uh, where those vagrancy laws essentially were in place to prevent you from doing it. And you don't get the sense that he really believes any of this, just that he's happy to have found this scam. So as you find out more about this character, his death is not like, oh, this weirdly tragic thing. And the movie handles it badly. The movie like replaces it with a very bizarre scene where uh, Fred Ward as Hoke is like in the park and um, and the, the demi-regular who's in all of his movies, who's all of his, his producer, John, you know who I'm talking about. What's that guy's name is playing the Krishna in the park, the dog faced man who's in all of his movies and doesn't have any lines. And so you have like no sense of like the Krishna's in it, uh, why they're joking about it when uh, he dies in the book, you get a little sense of like the police hate these guys because it's a scam in the movie when they're joking about it. You're like, what a bunch of fucking assholes, you know? Um, Kenneth Ut. Kenneth Ut. Kenneth Ut. Yes, and um, and and that's the one the one element that I always when I watch the movie I'm like oh I really miss this I don't miss Fringer necessarily being a big prison bound meathead who's gotten jacked in prison although that's very big part of the book and it uh, enough that they just sort of can't avoid it in the movie there's references to them being like hey are you an aerobics instructor or something in the movie. Um, and then also the the other, I would say, major change from the book to the movie is that the Krishna is Susan Wagner's brother, and they have an incestuous relationship, it's implied. And I understand why the movie... Oh, it's not implied. <laughs> it's explicit. Is it explicit. explicitly said? Yeah, she, she's, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. She, she actually goes to Miami to get an abortion because he gets her pregnant. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a strong implication where I'm from. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you can get pregnant without having incestuous sex oh yeah Um, it was awful to her yes and that is that's what i mean is like that's so nasty uh like a such a uh like mean streak kind of nasty not like that's gross nasty but like mean streak nasty that i understand why a fundamentally uh uh good-hearted person like jonathan demi uh who is again a floridian as well and he's a producer on the film he was approached to direct it and handed it off to his good friend george armitage who um that's why it has all of the demi people like takfu emoto and craig mckay working on it and it has oh, napier 
yeah, Charles Napier as as uh, as Hoke's partner. Very dimmy, uh, dimmy influenced film. Although I I asked him about it and he hated talking about his own work, and all he would ever say about it was, "That's George's movie. It's George's movie," uh-huh. you know. Ah, it's George's movie. But Tech, I know you had a, a strong opinion about the brother-sister thing being changed in the movie. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I love the movie too. And the movie's like this weird magic trick in that it... it. Uh, I love Jennifer Jason Lee. I love Fred Ward. Alec Baldwin, sometimes I love him, sometimes I don't. I shouldn't yeah. buy it when he's low in, when Fred Ward goes, uh, how, where'd you do your time? So you're guarding that. Play. And I'm like, where did Alec Baldwin do oh, his, yeah, time? his time? Come exactly. on, Alec Baldwin did time where? Waiting in, <laughs> in a casting session? However, <laughs> but I buy it. I buy it because yeah. Alec Baldwin is amazing in the it's movie. phenomenal. You I know mean, the history of his casting, right? No, but he's amazing in it. The, what, what happened was is Fred Ward was supposed to play Fred Fringer Jr. He was the one uh, who had... Uh, gotten the option to make the book. He wanted Demi to direct it. Demi was like, I'm, I don't want to do it. George should do it. He'd be great. And you should use this actor who was just in my movie, uh, Married to the Mob, Alec Baldwin. He's going to be phenomenal. He's going to be a huge star. Yeah, he'd be great for Fred Fringer. Great and call. Fred, Fred, yeah. And everyone's like, oh, we got to cast him as Fred Fringer. We got to, we got to, uh, uh, Fred Ward will play Hoke. Sorry, guy we had cast as Hoke who was going to play Hoke. Can you leave the movie, Gene Hackman? Wow. Yeah. Wow. And that's, yeah. And so he's thanked in the credits and apparently was super gracious and was like, no, I agree. It's you guys are making the right choice. The shift is going to make the movie better. The funny thing about that is he was originally supposed to play Hannibal Lecter as well for uh, Demi and Sounds of the Lambs. Who was Hackman? Hackman, yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know, honestly, reading Miami Blues this time, I, I thought a Hackman is Hoke, and it really worked. I think Hackman would have yes. been a good Hoke, honestly. I think he would have been great. I think that Fred Ward would have been a plausible Fringer, too. For I sure, think, for sure. I think, think that, I think that Alec Baldwin is dynamite in it, and he has the sort of charming narcissism that transformed the book. Fred Fringer is a bad, mean, dumb person in the book. He is dangerous and scary to me in the book. And in the movie... You're with him. He steals the movie, you know, in a way that the book is evenly weighted between Hoke and Fringer to me. The movie is Alec Baldwin and Fringer's movie to me. I, I, I agree. And he's so charming. That scene in the hotel where he's kind of counting the money yeah. and doing the Cuban accent. A million accent. Brazilian dollars. <laughs> well, it's a worthless. very nice vehicle. Wrap it up, man. Wrap it up. I, I don't think that you are a Porsche customer. <laughs> Mr. Gottlieb. Uh, it's extraordinary, man. He's so fucking good. Yeah, and they're seen together when he first asks her over. And just, I mean, because she's always the, the best. And, and, yeah. and but he, he's mind-blowing. I loved it. But what I was going to say is that you'd think I'd be more upset about the changes in the book. It, it does steal what is, to me, one of the it's weird right because the movie's its own thing it's like its own thing that works great it and i think to myself but you don't have this great scene but you don't miss it when he goes to their apartment he goes to their apartment because he has to tell her her brother's dead exactly um exactly instead of it being about the suede sport coat it makes much more sense how they find him and then they have that great scene where where um uh in the book he says uh 
he offers him a cigarette and then he says, Alec Baldwin says, no, thank you. Or rather, Freddie says, no, thank you in the book. And then he says, you listen, this guy that got killed at the airport, he was your, your brother. And then, and Freddie's like, you know what? I'll take that cigarette. It, <laughs> it makes you laugh on the page, you know? And, yeah. and it would have been a great scene for the movie. And I just don't understand it. I would have taken out the rape element. I think that's pretty heavy, the incest thing. Yeah. Um, but I would have left in the brother thing because it makes perfect sense. And it, it does. It does. And it feels like changing the brother element is a way of just like they want to get away from that rape subplot so much they also i think the movie feels uncomfortable with the coincidence of the prostitute he goes to is the brother of the person he just killed and tries to sort of come up with a more logical solution but that's such a great miami spin crazy shit you know i'm with you man i'm with you 100 percent on it uh but yeah let me just say uh george armitage uh the changes he made it's economical as well i mean yeah it, it gets Freddie and Susan together quicker and kind of establishes their relationship without having to have the stuff at Miami Dade and things like that. But, I, but you're right. It's, he's definitely toned down the meanness a lot. I mean, one of the best lines in the movie is um, he ate everything I cooked for him and he never hit me. Yeah. And hitting her is one of the first things he does. In yeah. book. Um, so, you know, I kind of appreciate that that level of you know toning it down just a little bit because there is that sort of sweetness to the relationship it becomes a tragic, a tragic romance in yeah. the movie which is mm -hmm. what i like about it is that it's it's about uh, a romance among people who possibly don't deserve it and in the book it's definitely not that it's definitely dangerous people and this this sort of um shambling ambling cop on their trail you know yeah and there's no question in the book that he would you know uh, ditch or even kill susan without thinking about it you know yeah. he's a blight psychopath for christ's sake but uh in the movie there is that sort of question it, it, it keeps things open where you know you don't really know what he would do or how he actually feels about well her. that's like, the doesn't. scene the scene where he's trying to stop the robbery with the can of tomato uh, uh sauce is such a good scene in the movie of him actually believing it actually believing you can be somebody other than who you are is it possible to be somebody other than myself than the person i've been cursed with being can we change can we become somebody else can we become the best version of ourselves and it's very powerfully felt especially in in baldwin's performance and i don't think that's a theme of the book necessarily it's there but the movie is is um about that that's what the movie is about. I agree know? with that. And and Hoke is very much resigned to who he is. And it's not, I don't think it's by mistake that the person, you know, he, he the person that knows who he is kills the person that thinks he can be someone else. Yes. Yeah. And the person who's not necessarily uh, 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 unhappy with what might be an unhappy existence for a lot of people. He's not. Listen, I've, I'm in a Hulk mostly kind of place myself at 52. It's and a I'm nice like, place to get to. I'm you like, you know what? Your ex-wife Fuck. is fucking Curly Jackson and your kid's got a punk rock hairdo. He's <laughs> like, I'm okay with it, man. You're like, fuck it. This is what I got. And these I'm going to buy a poplin jumpsuit, take the <laughs> sleeves off of it and hit the road. <laughs> That's it. And, 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 and that movie just has this kind of upbeat to it for being so gritty it has a real upbeat flavor to it when he when he says 
I got my teeth back and the song comes yeah. on. It's terrific. It's just terrific. <laughs> yes. And as a, as a Miami and, you know, I, well, it I, ties into your to your non-ironic Jimmy Buffett shirt thing, where "Spirit in the Sky" was written by um, Greenbaum, who is obviously a Jewish guy who there's reason to believe did not believe in the spirit in the sky sense of Jesus, right? That he's in some ways maybe co-opting in a way that that may or may not be true. It should be ironic, but it's still, it's a song that ends up being super sincere. And there's a lot of that running through the movie of things that should be ironic, bitterly ironic, ending up being sincere expressions of something kind of nice, like your, your Jimmy Buffett shirt. I think that's a nice way to tie it together. <laughs> I think you're right. That little house that they make in Coral Gables, that little home that they make. And I, yeah. I, I lived right outside Coral Gables, which is actually, it's actually really pretty. And it, it was designed in the thirties. And there's another thing called Coco Plum, which we'll get into at the end. And it's kind of like a, like a nouveau, like a Beverly Hills. It's kind of fake. And like what you described, Chris and, and, and the Gables is, is, is a ritzy neighborhood, but it's pretty open and it's beautiful and you i mean i i lived there with with my first uh, with well not my first with my with my ex-wife and we had this little cozy home and i remember i would always flash back like what are we doing like a like a junior thing here like it just felt like that it's yeah a, it's a wonderfully <laughs> atmospheric movie and they take a, a public pool called venetian pool they make that into the restaurant in the movie yeah there's a park really a few blocks from where I am now, which is a few blocks from where Demi went to high school, South Miami high, um, where they staged that little fake Hare Krishna thing. Um, and, and it's literally just an open park and they're just shooting up at these yeah. you know, the big hills. Tell us more about the pool. I really enjoyed the pictures that you sent to us. Yeah, uh, that's just a great pool where you can get, part of Coral Gables is really gorgeous and uh, and it's old. So it's old and gorgeous. I mean, and there's these great, like there's these great libraries where I grew up watching movies yeah. and renting books and I, I wasn't from Coral Gables but I ride my bike there and it was like a whole other world. Um, it was like a castle and you could just, it's amazing. Don't get me started but they have this great public pool. It's like five, six bucks and you can go swimming all day. And they made this amazing pool in, which is a natural spring pool into this restaurant in the movie. And I always wonder, like, you know, the one with the water ballet dancers, I always wonder why yeah, do they do that in movies? Like, why don't they just the, use uh, a regular ice cream restaurant? dressing? That's sour as shit. Oh my God. That's the best. <laughs> that's yogurt. <laughs> and Martine and Martine Beswick, the legendary Bond lady, as the waitress, yeah. oh, that's, gets offended. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. What, let me ask you what what kind? What's a Cersei salad that they order in the book, and she orders it in the movie? What is that? I have no idea. I was hoping for some Miami guidance there. I'd hoping you'd be like. <laughs> Chris, man, you've never had one. We're eating well, them every goddamn day down here. In my, you know, in the book, they're they're eating at Granny Feelgoods, which is this health food restaurant, which was you. It was everywhere, not everywhere. There were like three or four locations yeah. in the eighties, and everybody's like, "We're going to Granny Feelgoods." My buddy managed one, and then we'd go bet on at the dog track at night. I know that's cruel. <laughs> now we didn't know it was cruel. We didn't know we were stupid. I apologize. That's very cruel. Um, but um, anyway, they were everywhere. I would never go to the uh, to one of those tracks now, but can I say a line from the from the from this from the um, book that that stays with me that I think shows the level of writing that he's doing and how quickly he paints a picture? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's I always think of that line where he says uh, he's talking about the dead Krishna and he says uh, or when he goes to visit 
to give the news to the other Krishna. And he says, uh, a man he had prayed with and ate brown rice with stretched out on the carpet in the Aeromexico, in the, on the blue carpet in the Aeromexico terminal. And I'm like, a guy he prayed with and ate brown rice with yeah. stretched out on the blue carpet. And it's all, you're like, wow, I totally get it. It's really hard boiled without being faux hard boiled, without yeah. being phony. Yes. Great example of what you're saying too, of you tell the truth and they'll accuse you of writing dark humor. There's something that's, that's, there's, that's darkly humorous in that description too. That's both beautiful and sad and darkly humorous. Great, great hard boiled writing. I think you're absolutely right. One of my favorite moments from the Miami blues book that didn't make it to the movie uh, was when Fringer buys the three Frisbees and takes them out and just throws them out into traffic. It's awesome. like, I don't get it. It's not that fun. <laughs> and it has that great line about, oh, what's the exact line? Uh, do I have it now? Perhaps you needed a partner to, to aim at. To <laughs> <laughs> so should we move on to, um, to talking a little darker from Amber for, to the second half of this double feature? Darker than Amber being the seventh Travis McGee book in the series. John, do you want to introduce that one? Yes, as you say, it's the seventh of 21 books featuring Fort Lauderdale-based scavenge consultant Travis McGee, who's also been described... Quote-unquote salvage consultant. Who's also been described as a quote-unquote boat bum coyote, which I don't really get. Uh, but I get the boat bum part, at least. Uh, he owns a 52-foot houseboat called the Busted Flush. She won in a game, a card game. And uh, he helps out folks who've been ripped off for a fee of half of the recovered amount, which he claims uh, to his clients, half of something is better than half of nothing. So that's sort of his working model. So this novel opens with a high-class hooker being dumped off a bridge with a cement block wired around her leg. McGee and his buddy Meyer, who is an economic theorist, who's sort of McGee's home base sidekick, uh, happen to be uh, fishing in the area and they save her life. Turns out she's involved in a scheme to steal money from rich men by seducing them on cruise ships drugging them and dumping them overboard. So no sooner has she left McGee, the hooker is killed and McGee decides to involve himself in the criminal ring sort of initially. Yeah. She like goes get to the money back and gets killed. So she survives. Find her and she gets killed. Yeah. Um, she thinks she's owed some money and wants Travis to help her get it. He sort of demures and is killed. She like stashed her. Yeah. She stashed her take from uh, all this murder. And um, so she goes to get it. She gets murdered. So, McGee initially goes to think he'll get this money, uh, but then it kind of becomes sort of more of a revenge scenario. Uh, yeah. where he, he decides he's just going to take this operation down with the help of Meyer, his good friend. So that's the setup for this uh, seventh Travis McGee book, one of, the, one of the only two that have been adapted for uh, films of the 21, which is kind of surprising, I, I guess. Uh, that I, I know a while it's back. Funny. It's funny too. Um, I don't know if I've ever told you this, John, or certainly haven't told you, Bill Tech. I have a friend who, um, whose film went South by Southwest like eight years ago. And when he was like brought out to Hollywood to, to do stuff, one of the things they wanted him to do was uh, make a Travis McGee adaptation and do a Travis McGee. And he is like not a crime person at all and had never heard of it and was like, I don't want to do that. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me like i couldn't believe is like have you heard of these books and it's like of course i've heard of these books what are you talking about but they're out there still trying to get them made apparently they're well, still supposedly around yeah. hollywood there was a time a few uh several years ago now where oliver stone was supposed to make one with dicaprio uh interesting the game. i wonder if it's that dicaprio that's driving it in some way 
that would, would make sense. Why, why, you know, if you're the hot young filmmaker, they want to make you have you do a Travis McGee book. And it was a specific one. It was the one with yellow in the title. I can't remember all of the titles. Each of them have a title color to them, like darker than amber. It's got a color scheme going on in the titles. But this the uh, was the nightmare. F- the first, the first uh, Travis McGee I've read, the first one Mr. Bill Tech has read. What were your impressions, sir? Oh, man. I was blown away by the, by the language of it. I, I couldn't believe how beautiful. He was describing her cheek, um, Vanjie's cheek, and I was like, what the fuck am I reading? Vanjie is the, uh, <laughs> the prostitute who was thrown yeah. over the bridge at the beginning. Yeah, and I was like, is this Dickens? What am I reading? I, was, <laughs> I, I couldn't believe how beautifully it was written and how he'd go on these flights and just kind of lay his own stuff out. And it, I totally tripped out on, on, on how beautifully written it was. I didn't expect that at all. I've been looking at these book covers my whole life, and it never occurred to me to pick one up. You know, um, being – I didn't honestly being from florida sometimes you're just not that guy and i'm i'm surrounded by the topsider boat people but i'm not of them well that's the one thing that struck me that always i'm not a huge fan of the travis mcgee novels and i think it's because i'm not a topsider reading this one it occurred to me why i keep them at arm's length which is that at one point he's complaining about how boring vanjie's story is about like prostitution and drugs and criminal enterprise are but like his boat is the most fucking interesting thing in the world to him like he wants to tell you what this kind of drawer is called and up there about that thing and just like uh, just loves his goddamn boat and i do not care about boats and i think that 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 moment where he's like god her story is about like ripping dudes off and being a beautiful woman leading a sexy dangerous life are so and tragic and awful i'm bored with this back to talking about how we make beans or what the fuck ever down in the galley matey you know that kind of crap Uh, that's pretty funny i i i I hooked in man i loved like meyer and that whole world and like it was you know we're not there yet because we haven't really discussed the the plot but i think when we do get to it you know it's dated in terms of its attitudes yeah but I didn't bother me. It, I was just like, this is how this character thinks, and I find it entertaining. I, I was on board with it. Yeah, it is very dated. I think if that... He's on board. <laughs> you are on board. Well, earlier, Chris was like, oh, I knew that relationship was dead in the water, and yeah. I didn't even get to make a pun <laughs> about it. But yet, uh, um, yeah, it is. it is... Its sexual attitudes are um, very dated, and I think that it's but that's part of their pride as characters i think that that's that's what the characters are i don't think it's a mistake of the novels i, I agree think that they are supposed to be in some ways uh this book is 67 i believe right i think they're a, a little bit of a reaction to sort of uh sexual liberation type stuff that they're that they're sort of the, the last great men cowboy types and a new wild west frontier of sexual openness. Um, and one of the first things that strikes you in the book is he's just saved this woman who's been thrown overboard uh, and is drowning and pulls her up and she's barely alive. And he's like, check out these fucking legs. These are hot. This woman's almost dead. I would hit that shit. 
You know, that is like the attitude of the book and you either have to accept it or not. You know, like if you're on, on board, if you are, if you say gangs away and take this journey, you know, with the, uh, the book, I think that you just sort of like, that's a bar you got to clear at the very beginning with this. And that's a lot of crime fiction though. Sure. I mean, just the way they kept referring. Yeah. Just the way they kept referring to her as the bitch, you know, hey, yeah. it, it immediately got me thinking actually of the end of Casino Royale, the Ian Fleming book where Bond says the bitch is dead. And clearly that's, you know, a loaded line. He's not just expressing misogyny. He's hiding his own emotions. Like clearly yeah. devastated that she's been killed, but he says, fuck it. I don't care. Cause I'm James Bond and I'm too cool to care. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of that in this as well. Yes. This is an interesting portrait of, I'm not, I've only read like, four or five of these books um it's an interesting portrait it's a lot more introspective about mcgee and about him he's clearly super into vanjie super attracted to her but he doesn't like her because she's a prostitute and a sort of damaged goods and in some ways he's a lot of the book is really about him trying to get over that and figure out how he feels especially the second half of this book when they're trying to get revenge and they find a woman that looks like her to sort of trick these other people and be afraid that she's survived and is back this book is in a lot of ways like a variation on vertigo it's about this guy's sexual hangups and attempts to create an idealized woman in the context of uh, conflict and um, and con artistry about the way anybody creates their persona from scratch, uh, but also the way we in our minds as red-blooded heterosexual men create an image of a woman to be attracted to and try and get women to live up to that. That's very much what this book is about. And viewed in the most favorable light, I think that these are themes of this book, not just expressions of the time. You know, I think that it is an expression of the time in some ways, but I think it's also, of all of the ones I've read, it's the most concerned with the meaning of those attitudes. And I think it makes it um, stand stand above the others that I've yeah, read but, in some way. But, but I'm with you in terms of sort of the inner character stuff not working for me. Um, and that the action scenes are the highlights of the book. Yeah. For sure. I when mean, it gets him, to the second him diving, Well, even just in, him diving down to save her, I yeah. think it's a really intense, well-described scene where he gets into the situation where his life is in danger, where Griff, who's apparently ported over from a Sam Fuller movie, uh, is going to shoot, you know, murder him on the beach. And then he has to get out of that. Yeah. I think just the classic scenes of, you know, I don't even want to say like, like the cliched action scenes that need to be in this book were my favorite parts of it. Yeah. He's a great, he's really he's good writer. great at well, writing I, action. He's a very propulsive writer when yeah. he needs to put the throttle down. When he's describing his her, what does he say? Like her grip was like a like a child's or like a young girl's or like a ba- like yeah. You know, it gives him and I was like I could. It was so descriptive. Um, I was really. I've read a lot, you know, I'll dip my toe into some of these crime books that are, that are lauded and inevitably if it's not Wildford or Buchanan or one of these big yeah. guns, you know, sometimes I'm like, man, did I need to read that? And, and <laughs> in this particular case, I was like, I was all in. I was like, this is just really. Now you saw the movie before you read the book. 
do you feel like you were importing some of the movie and because you really like the movie, right? It's Robert Klaus who did Enter the Dragon, the pack. And he got Enter the Dragon because of the fight scene in the movie, which is... Oh, interesting. Uh, there's this wild fight. You can just look up fight scene, um, Darker Than Amber, and it's Rod Taylor and William Smith. Mm-hmm. beating the crap out of each other. and Rod and Taylor is weird casting. <laughs> he's, he produced it, and he wanted to make oh, a series okay. of... The, he wanted to make a whole James Bond series of these things, and apparently the movie was not a success. And it, it did get good reviews. I think, you know, from Ebert to the New York Times, everybody kind of liked it, but... Um, it didn't do business and they centered a campaign around this fight. Like this is the most brutal fight of all time. And yeah. When they put it on TV, they edit it down to 30 seconds and it's about a minute 30 and the most ridiculous YouTube comments you've ever seen in the world. They're like, you can tell it's real here. He's breaking William L. Smith's ribs and here he's getting breaking Rod Taylor's nose. And I'm like, yeah. what are you talking about? <laughs> Have you guys ever been in a fight? That's not anything like a real fight. It is a hokey Captain Kirk-esque fight. I love yeah. Captain Kirk, but come on. Um, it's some Kirk jitsu there where you kind of hit somebody with your butt and you fall on the ground. Yeah. Um, uh, it, 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 but it, it is, um, the myth is that, that Rod Taylor and William L. Smith, somebody took a swing at somebody, they connected, and then these guys went at it and they caught it on, on camera. You yeah. Know, just roll. I don't buy it for a minute. It looked totally like a Hollywood fight to me. But literally, there are 50 comments on the brutality. And I'm like, what are you yeah. kidding? Now, the movie itself um, is, it changes a lot of details from the book. I don't want to give any spoilers. I, I don't think it's available anywhere. I caught it on YouTube. Um, but it is um, a, a, a really... I thought it was really, really interesting. It makes Vanjie much, it does a lot of this interesting pairing because it does a lot of the things that the Miami Blues movie does to the book. It makes the, the, uh, it makes Vanjie much less cynical, much less kind of uh, manipulative, much less evil. It, ma- it makes her, um, it makes William Smith much, you know, still a bad guy. It's like this weird bodybuilding gang of bodybuilders. Yeah. That are all kind of evil. Um, but it does, Tone down the, you know, people like to, you're out in the sun all day. So you know how it is. Um, (laughs) The sun eats your brain and then you want to pick things up and put them down. Um, (laughs) uh, But it it is, uh, it, it, it's what I liked about the film was it really captures the sense of Florida. Uh, the wreck bar is in the movie and the houseboat is really well drawn and the whole houseboat lifestyle where there's like, you know, the, the swingers on one boat and the weird kind of well-to-do people on another boat. And I thought it really painted the milieu well. I thought the action sequences were really I well done. I love early on when like the neighboring woman just approaches them at the marina and is talking about how her friend had the baby and uh, the other friend was out caught out in the storm after you've been living this like crime plot for like 70 pages like somebody strolls over and you get this very sharp picture very quickly of the life he's leading 98 percent of his days and that's all in the, in the movie. And it does a great job with that stuff. And, and, and it has a kind of a, I dug it. I dug it. It's a strange film, but I dug it. Do they include the line, you'll bitch us both up? I don't believe they do. <laughs> I don't believe they do. You know, oh, it stuck out for me. Um, no, I wanted to ask though about the book and its depiction of Florida, uh, you know, just to say again, how 
Miami Blues is obviously a lot about an outsider's view of Miami. And obviously, McGee is this, uh, you know, um, well-entrenched Florida resident. So I feel like McDonald doesn't take a lot of time to kind of explain the way things work uh, or, you know, the difference between, you know, areas in Florida, the way that Wilford gets into. Uh, but it kind of makes for another interesting sort of way. I, you were talking about the, all the bars in South Beach and how much fun they were. The bars depicted in this book sound like the saddest fucking places you've <laughs> yeah. ever been. And these are supposed to be like the really nice elite bars, you know, and they sound fucking miserable to me. They, they still have a lot of those bars. Like, you know, as you go up to Central and North Florida, or even Fort Lauderdale has some some sad places, man. This book uh, has the world's dumbest marks in it. The guy Guys who get killed by the scam are the dumbest, saddest marks you will ever encounter in a book. They're like, now you got to check in on the cruise under a fake name and bring a briefcase full of money. You know, it's just a like... A money belt full of money. <laughs> I felt like, oh, and that, that... See, the fight on the cruise ship with the money belt and all that stuff in the book is... Um, not as good as in the movie and kind of weird. It kind of weird. It, 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 I thought it was a little off. I agree. Um, it's very strange. I was having trouble understanding who was winning and, and what I, I, was like, I guess he wanted to like create confusion because it's, it's in like the dark, like, you know, but well, that should like be pointed dark. out is that he <laughs> loves to create confusion as a writer and then uh, resolve it. Like the chapter where we find out that Vanjie has been killed for real a second time. We don't see it. She's a victim of a hit and run and it comes in after she's dead just like uh at the beginning of a chapter and a lot of chapters in this book begin with something big having happened having happened already and you piece together what it jumped over uh it's something he does a lot as a writer is to create intentional confusion and then have the audience work through it the reader work through it that's interesting. And the movie makes it much more kind of rote. It, uh, you see her getting murdered. You see her go back to the place. And I don't want to give any spoilers, but they really, they, you know, it's, it's a traditional thing. I also should mention, there's a, in the movie, you can see where they're setting it up to be a series. And that, yeah. that fight in the, um, at the end is very much the From Russia With Love fight. I mean, they, William Smith even has blonde yeah. hair, like uh, Robert Shaw. And it's, just, it's supposed to be that level of quote-unquote brutality, which it just seems hokey. Well, it's interesting, too, to mention you know, the early Bond films. This movie is, it belongs to a different era of Miami than Miami Blues. It is our Florida than Miami Blues. It is more Key Largo and Raymond Chandler than it is modern crime fiction to me. It's at a, a transitional moment, but I feel like its ideas and approach are very classic crime fiction, especially when you consider what's happening at the same moment or shortly thereafter in crime fiction, that it, it feels like almost prehistoric in its approach to these stories, you know, that, that you have like his contemporaries, somebody like, you know, George V. Higgins, just like taking things so far down the line that it's, it's almost crazy that somebody would have the balls to make like a Raymond Chandler-esque style story in that way. I think that's a really good point. Uh, so what do we think about a character that comes in uh, mid-book who is introduced as being a maid uh, and uh, and she's the, she's the, the maid for uh, Vanjie's apartment. So Travis Meeky needs to approach her and talk to her. And it turns out she is 
uh, some kind of a, a spy or a, a, an agent, but she affects this, uh, shall we say, um, topical sort of stereotyped, you know, poor black woman voice and then flips over to regular talk when, you know, she realizes that McGee is one of the good guys. It's kind of an interesting thing that well, I kind of like to talk about. Well, that, that's the part that I had me standing on my head and going, well, what, the, what am I reading? <laughs> what, yeah. what am I reading? When that, when he's, and it's funny because in the movie, it's super progressive and, you know, she's like a cool character and he, hey, let me help you out. And sure, she's going to help him. And there's not a lot of that, you know, from what I remember. Um, and then I'm reading the book and just in the description, the physical description of the, of the woman. And I'm like, what is this written by like the clan anthropologist? (laughs) That is, that's by the way, a line from the morning after the Sydney Lament movie. Oh my God. Yeah. Jeff Cribs wrote a huge article on our, for our site on that movie. I have to look that up because I, I didn't care for the movie at all. I knew Raul Julia was a killer at the top. But that line, when Jeff Bridges is saying something kind of racist, and Jane Fonda's like, what are you, the clan anthropologist? <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Um, so I'm reading the book, and I get to this description. I'm like, oh, I feel super weird right now. I yeah. don't want to read this. And then, I, and then it made me think, when he starts getting into like his philosophy and McGee's philosophy about this percentage southerners and this percentage of ignorant people and this percentage of white people and black people and I, and I was just like oh this is weird what the, yeah. what am I reading so then I started <laughs> researching like is this guy a fucking racist see, am I reading am I some crypto fascist yeah. stuff what the fuck am I reading is this guy some horrible racist guy and everything was like hey, he was uh, so well, progressive he was nah, such a progressive hero you, having read the executioners right before this to write about Cape Fear he is he is in his non-McGee books deeply fucked up and reactionary that that those kind of moments are entire books are built out of them in his oeuvre you know i I just couldn't believe when i was reading through the the um, you know the comments on everything and everything was like oh no he was just a big champion he was so ahead of the curve and he was so progressive and he was a big champion i'm like that doesn't he come feels off to me. behind the curve even for the time for and me. And I was going to ask you guys, I was, what's the... No, I mean, well, it's, he's, it's funny. He's fucked up. It, it, <laughs> We've it's talked fun- about it a little. <laughs> it's funny because I had the same, I had the same reaction as Bill did of, you know, oh no, no, he's not going to use these colloquial voices. Is he really? And then when it turns out like, that's just my cover. I'm actually a really educated person. It feels a lot like what he's trying to do with the sexual politics of the book or kind of responding to how these characters would feel where he's, you know, kind of trying to pull the carpet out from under us and say, listen, she's actually, black people are actually smart. Maybe you didn't realize that guy, but they are. Um, And then then again, having McGee saying, well, I have is a little use for, you know, purple or green scumbags as I would for white scumbags, you know, and and have trying to like back off of that racist thing, but just comes off as like, Ooh, missed the mark on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I definitely felt weird. felt weird for me. I was like, well, maybe I'm not going to read all these books. <laughs> yeah, well, something it's too like I. Another thing that struck me uh, reading it is when it's something that was really a certain kind of like. Um, 60s masculine shit was when uh, Vanjie puts on the music, and she doesn't like any of his stuff that he has to listen to so she finds a rock station and he describes it as 
uh, sounding like beetle bug mating chains. Oh, yeah. And And it's clearly directed at like the beetles and the stones and it's imagine like how square beyond square you have to have been to have hated you know the new rock music happening in the late 60s you know sean connery's bond hated the beatles too (laughs) exactly that's what i'm saying is that and dean martin hated the the stones for sure yeah exactly it's a certain kind of like bring me a highball baby type that's also like (laughs) You know, this beetle bug mating chain music, just all of that stuff is... is. But also, like, calling the Watusi, like, the new dance that all the kids are doing is like, why not just date your stamp, you know, the date on your book right there, 1966. He's doing the dance that Adam West is doing on Batman. The Batusi. But a lot of the sexual (laughs) politics, too, like the opening thing that we haven't even talked about where he's uh, doing the, the clinical treatment of the woman who's in a bad marriage by getting mm. her drunk and raping her until she's had such good sex that now she's cured of wanting to be in a bad marriage anymore. Maybe she's too cured. She might think I'm her boyfriend. Time to ship her back to the sister. Am I right, fellas? You know, no, I, like, I, I'm not with you, Travis. That was crazy. And then he's like, uh, and then he's like, but you know, she'll probably relapse and then I'll have to do it again. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck? Mean, Yeah, you get the sense like that Mr. The Mr. Show joke. I'm planning a relapse for next July. You know, that kind of thing where it's like, can't wait funny. for the relapse. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, 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 uh, you know, I think that you, this, this book, the unkindest version of this book is that like, you get to him saying, and I shucked her out of her shorts despite her gentle protestations. If you don't throw it out the window at that line on like page four, stick with it, you know, like you'll get through. But then it's interestingly <laughs> at odds. really with hard on this book, Bill. I feel bad because I know you really dug the movie and you dig the book, but. Well, no, you know, I dug the movie and I dug the book, but that was stuff where like, like, I'm a I'm a weird cat, like because I read that stuff and I thought this is fucked up. Me but I'm gonna be honest. I can get over all that shit. I, I, I thought I, as a reader, I can't. As a reader, I got over the the. To me, the sexist part was like that's the character. That is the yeah. character, and I felt like that was the character talking. And maybe it was the way McDonald. But I'm like, nah, you don't know a lot of writers that are coxmen. So <laughs> I, I thought that's the character. Maybe that's who he wants yeah. to be. But I felt. But then when it got to the racial part, where he was kind of laying his philosophy, well, you know, this is when you run into this kind of educated white guy and this kind of educated African American guy and whatever the that part. I thought, well, he's editorializing and he's kind of giving me his point of view and that made me feel weird just being yeah. honest about my different reactions to those two different things um which was in such a sharp contrast to the wilford's approach to i think women and minorities and yeah his quote-unquote progressiveness or whatever but to me when wilford and did i interrupt you john by the way no, no. You sure? No. Wilford has a moment. I'm taking the segue, which, man. Go for it. Which, which, which says a lot, I think, about the kind of guy he was and the kind of thinking he was doing. He stops in like page 30 or 40, and he's talking about the Marielitos and the Marielitos and the Marielitos. Yeah. And he stops and he gives you like a little lesson. And he's, yeah. like, he's like, you know, Castro sent over 100,000 people came over. And he also included made you know forced people to come from the jails and so forth but that was like this many thousand people but they kind of got a bad rap even though it was mostly decent people yeah 
And he stops the book and does that outside of Hoke's voice, outside of anybody's yeah. voice. And, and also when, when Hoke doesn't seem to care for the Cuban immigrants or have much respect for him, it's in keeping with that kind of Hoke type of guy. Hoke is a guy who's been left behind by the world. Like Hoke is intentionally a dude who he's living with senior citizens. He's, he's a relic before his time. And I think that is commentary on Williford's part in a way I don't necessarily get the sense of commentary on McDonald's part. Yeah, well, there's that's... no question, too, that, uh, you know, Wilford, anything coming from Hope Mosley is the character, not, you know, Wilford making a yeah. comment when he's in the hospital and he felt uncomfortable because the gay nurse shoved an enema up his ass. You know, you know that that's all Hope Mosley uncomfortableness. Yeah, absolutely true. And, I th- and what Wilford does bring out very beautifully in Hoke is that feeling of being kind of left behind in your own community, which I watched with my dad. My dad was the yeah. most kind of, you know, he was the most progressive guy in the world. But it's weird when your whole community changes around you and then people don't go out of your way to make you feel like part of your community. So they were like, oh, can you get an Americano? And he was like, but I've been here. I'm being super welcoming to you. Can yeah. you welcome me in? And they were like, yeah. no, fuck you. And that makes you feel weird. And that's when people get alienated. And I think he captured that in Hoke really, uh, really well. But, alienated but, uh, from 20 different directions, too, through his children, his ex-wife, uh, his Cuban partner, you know, who becomes a much bigger part of the later books. Yeah, that part where, where Williford takes a minute and gives you a little, like, one-sentence history lesson in yeah. the Mariel boat lift, since he's talking about the Marielitos throughout the book. But yeah. he takes a minute to tell you what it is, and it goes such a long way, because I have a lot of friends that came in the Mariel boat lift. And yeah. of all the Cuban immigrations, that was the one that most integrated to American society. The freedom flights, a lot of those guys died with their suitcases packed, thinking they were going back, you know? And yeah. they were older. Um, and they never really acclimated. And even like the, the recent immigrations, a lot of those people, eh, they, they're here, but they kind of go back and forth and they haven't acclimated that much. Marianne yeah. was, was young people that became citizens and more than any other group just really became, they became citizens, they became part of society and voters and so forth. So the people I know, and you'll see these girls with these frosted blonde hair that you're not going to assume came in the Mario boat lift. And they'll yeah. be talking and they'll be like, oh, you come on what boat? I came on the Nina, you came on the whatever. Oh my God, I can't believe it. And just that he would take that minute means so much. And he was yeah. not a Miamian, but he understood Miami, I think. Yeah. Interesting. Whereas McDonald's, you know, is like a Fort Lauderdale guy. That's another country <laughs> entirely. That's deck shoes and Jimmy Buffett and cocktails and swinging. Yeah. That's yeah my, I mean, I'm, I'm also an amazing way with words. I mean, the guy could fucking write. Yes. He's very, he, he, um, very quickly stakes the territory of this is not paid by the word, uh, you know, dime store stuff that this is, I'm a real writer and I'm going to take my time uh, expressing things, expressing language for language sake a lot of the time. I agree. John, if you had a boat, what would you name it? <laughs> uh, what do you think, Bill? Have you, did you, were you able to think of one? Man, I was, texting, I was texting my son and texting my business partner. Like, guys, guys, he's a boat guy. He's a big boat guy. Yeah. I'm like, bro, please just give me a name. And he came up with some corny ass name. It's no good. It's no good. I got nothing. <laughs> yeah. I'm so not a boat guy. They, 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 I get invited me on boats either. all the time. Yeah. And all I can think about is getting back and watching something on television or at the movies. <laughs> you could uh, you could uh, reference Darker Than Amber and call it the spooky little punch bag. 
It's not too shabby. <laughs> but no, not... I, I, I think the boat, I think it's, I think the answer is right in front of us guys. It's gotta be shit happens when you party naked, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good be, name. My boat would be called John would be called the implication. That would be what my boat would be called. <laughs> That's a good name. <laughs> That's a good name. No, it's horrible. <laughs> Travis McGee's boat should be named the implication. It should be called the implication. I think I want to go with the til- the tilde. The tilde. The tilde. Oh, that's cool. You know, that's cool. I don't know how cool it is, but no, nah, I'm with. The, I mean, boat. The thing is, his boat is called the Busted Flush. They gotta be a little whack. That's the fucking thing about boat names is that they can't actually be cool you sort of have to do that jimmy buffett thing of leaning into your lameness a little gotta, bit oh that's well a put that's bit. awfully well you know? put <laughs> that's that's what a boat name's gotta be um i don't know yeah. i wouldn't actually know i i like i like the water i'm a big scuba diver i love scuba diving but boats i'm take it or leave it yeah, yeah. i heard you say that you're a big scuba diver is that's i wouldn't necessarily where do you learn to scuba and you know where you're from uh, we, my dad got into it when he was living, uh, out suburbs of San Francisco. We just would start going, no, it was a little before that. It was when he was still down in new Orleans and you can go out into the Gulf coast down there. We'd swim off of Destin in Florida is where we would, we'd drive over to Destin and go do like a weekend of swimming down there. And, you know, I got all my dance certifications and things and learned how to do like dry suits and deep dives and stuff. And I really enjoyed doing slow down. My dad got a um the, the the i can't remember what's called i'm losing the word when you have the decompression sickness and had to stop he, he not flew, the bends yes he got the bends he flew on a plane like four days after a dive once and got the bends had to do the the decompression tanks and everything and doesn't dive anymore so it's it's slowed down since then but it was something i I'd, I'd do with my dad and it was always interesting to me because i'm a terrible swimmer I'm really really bad swimmer and it's very relaxing to be under the water you don't have to be a good swimmer to scuba dive and you know Flor- florida mainly but we you know we go other places around the world tulum cozumel things like that cartagena you can go you can go scuba diving anywhere man that's so freaky to me man i've never even tried it i'm a bad floridian but you make it sound cool it is cool it's genuinely nice and it and it's completely isolated and isolating you you dive with somebody but you are all alone with like sea life and it's cool like they swim up to you i i've always lived out in the country country and like you just don't want to be animal around animals if you see deer out in the wild they are filthy disgusting animals that are horrible disease vectors do not touch them everything where foxes rabbits all the stuff you have out here where i am raccoons these are all things just like you see them you got to go the other way you know like they are not clean they are not good animals the sea life you know like a sea turtle like swims up to you and it's it's fucking awesome you know, like little nurse sharks and stuff. Like it's, it, it's cool. They're just chilling down there with you. Even the things that are sort of like obviously unsettling, like moray eels and things, you, you give them their space, but you go like right around the fishes. You're right on top of them. You know, you're right, you're right around all this wildlife in a way that, you know, I didn't really experience with, I'm also a big horseback rider. It, it's that sort of feeling that you get with horses too, of like actually being in harmony in some with them in some way with sea life, you know, 
And then you can do like boat dives and things like that. But those, those are less interesting things where you run a risk of actually dying. I'm not super into like getting caught inside of something or on something I don't love. So, but you know, you can, you can do that stuff too. I'm surprised, Tech, uh, your childhood in the Venetian pool didn't lead to a scuba diving enthusiasm. <laughs> it led to me, like, wanting to go by 7-Eleven, get a Slurpee and a comic, <laughs> and watch TV. Yeah, so I, I, did, I did plenty of that, too. I spent hey, but, plenty of summers going to get the Slurpees. Like, like, you've ridden a horse. I think I rode a horse once. I was terrified. I was, oh, I was really? Supposed, I was supposed to go to the Springsteen concert the day after. I was like, if this horse breaks my leg and I can't go to the concert, I'm going to be really bummed out. Well, horses <laughs> are impossibly dumb, powerful animals. They are just, they are, they're so beautiful and majestic and they are so dumb that you have to be afraid of them. They are just, they, they, they can just, you got to be in control and they can, they can do a lot of damage. So I understand your fear too. And if you've ever seen somebody get kicked, you're like, why do I even go near these things? You know? Fascinating. Well, that's, that's way cool, man. That's a neat life. I, I, maybe it's not too late. I don't do much of it anymore. I I mean, I've become such a New Yorkino that like, I'm just like, I don't even get the chance, you know? That's just true. I went surfing for the first time at 51 last year. Yeah, it was cool. Wow. How is it? It was, fucking, it was cool. I got right up on the thing. I took, I was like, whoa, this is fun. It was really cool. <laughs> hey, I got to do something outside. I, I, I was about to agree with that, but I don't know if that's true. I'm an indoor, I'm an indoor cat as well, my man. <laughs> Trade your horses yeah, for fall out. Me, I'm fine. You know? <laughs> I want, I want the wet cat food. I don't want to catch a rat. That is my attitude on life. <laughs> So, Bill, I'm really glad that uh, you got into McDonald, that you're going to read some more of his books. That's, that's great. That's, uh, it's great. Yeah. I, I, hope, I hope I'm pleased by – I hope I – maybe I need to revisit that one part that freaked me out, but hopefully they'll go down you know, smooth. I, I just really enjoyed most of the language. Yeah, he's an interesting writer for sure. For sure, for sure. Um, did you have any final thoughts on the books, the movies, before we before we moved on to our dessert selections? I was really just pleased overall with how well both books captured a, a really real part of Florida. I mean, there are yeah. thousands and thousands of guys like Travis, you know, that I that are in Fort Lauderdale. I have a buddy that uh, has a, a marine salvage business and he goes and competes with other people, see who's going to get the boat. And I mean, it's a real picture. And, and, and what I love about Miami blues and the Hope Mosley character is that kind of Miami and is almost gone. And the few kind of holdouts that I know, I have one particular buddy of mine who's like one of the last of the original old school Miami people and he's holding on and, he really captures what that mindset is like. And it's, it's, it's beautiful that it's preserved and by such a brilliant writer, what yeah. it's like to be kind of a man out of your element, still functioning within this element. Yeah. Awesome. So, well, last thing I want to bring up, um, because Bill had texted me earlier, a photo of his friend uh, on set of the um, un unpicked up Hoke Mosley TV series that Scott oh. Frank was trying to uh, get going. And uh, I'd never seen one before. I knew all oh, about really? it. I'd never seen an onset photo <laughs> and seen Giamatti's look. It's yeah. funny because for a long time, 
uh, Giamatti wanted to play Philip K. Dick in a movie, right? Like a biopic of Philip K. Dick. Yeah. And I thought that's totally wrong. He does not look anything like Philip K. Dick. Giamatti should play a Philip K. Dick character mm-hmm. in a film. Like he's a perfect schlub, you know, a Philip K. Dick hero, 100%. And that, now I feel the reverse. After seeing this picture, Paul Giamatti should be playing Hope Mosley. He should be playing Charles Williford. He looks so much like <laughs> That's true. That's really true. That's actually very, very true. And I think that would be an interesting show. That would be an interesting show. And then they could go between Hope and Charles. You know, that could be cool. Yeah. It's weird that when I saw the stills from that show, I was very shocked that it was a period piece when I saw it, that, that it was going to be somehow existing in that that miami although it looked more 70s than 80s miami's to me well that that the thing about the the one of the reasons that i recommended the mean season as the aperitif is that 85 we it still felt like 70s miami by 89 by miami blues now Miamians had seen Miami Vice. So now we all thought it had to look <laughs> like a Michael Mann movie. So everybody started doing neon. There's the oldest bar in Miami. is a bar called Max Club Deuce. And if you yeah. guys ever come down and you want to have a, a drink with me, I'll, I'll take you guys there. And it's this great bar. I mean, it's been around since the 40s. Sinatra drank there. They have all this neon in there. But the neon was put there by Miami Vice, and they just left it up. Yeah. So that's how influential it is. It, Interesting. It, cha- it changed the way Miamians see things yeah. and the way Miamians perceive things. And that point of view, I think, informs the movie of Miami Blues, too. Whereas the hoax stuff is pre that. Yeah. It's all pre that. Interesting. Mm. Very mm. interesting. I also uh, seen that still because reading the book, I thought, obviously, I love Charles Napier, but I don't know if he's the um, Bill Henderson that Wilfred had in mind. And I was thinking, yeah. who would be. Who would be like a nice tubby partner to Hope Mosley? George Sunza. <laughs> too sleazy. Too sleazy. <laughs> um, but when I saw a picture and realized John Carroll Lynch was who they oh. cast, I thought, oh, nice work. That's That would have been a good That's name. a very good choice. Yeah. That's a very good choice. And what had happened was my buddy Oscar, Oscar uh, uh, DeRosa, DeRosa, he he, he – was going to be Hoke's Cuban partner. And he'd been cast as uh, the lead in another show, big show, Netflix show that went, he passed it up because he wanted to act with uh, Paul Giamatti. Oh, you know, but who would think that show wouldn't go? I I seen the stills. I would, I thought it was a slam dunk. Then you see the stills and you're like, Oh, I I think I get why it didn't go. I think they, they whiffed on this. I mean, who the hell knows what it was actually like, but it didn't look like uh, a slam dunk just to see a few stills. That kind of thing's got to be a crapshoot. I mean, Armitage told me he was trying to develop a period gangster film set in Miami, or, or series uh, based in Miami. Yeah. And um, that's just the kind of thing where I just immediately felt like, uh, who's, how are you going to hook people on that? It, it's just like so many different crime, Miami-based crime shows out there. You just got to have such a specific hook to it, I think. Yeah. It also requires some knowledge of the thing that we all kind of feel like we know about it, but it's, it's challenging. The audience has to know a little something first, I think. One Absolutely. more question for you, Bill Tech. How much do you love, a little or a lot, the casting of Nora Dunn as a Cuban? What, you know, it's an interesting question, and I think I can answer it As most, Alita Sanchez. I think I can answer it most... Um, Honestly, by talking about the Paris family, Mira Nair's film. Yeah. So Cubans in Miami were were outraged about the Paris family. 
They were like, yeah. we can't believe this movie exists. We're so mad. I say Cubans in Miami as if I'm not one of them, right? So a yeah. lot of Cubans in Miami were like, that is some bullshit. You know, Alfred Molina and Marissa yeah. Tomei. And just go down the list, you know. Um, there's no Cubans in it. Yeah. Didn't, didn't bother me one bit. I love the movie. I thought Maria Nair. You're talking really, about, uh, about uh, the Paris family. Yeah. Maria Nair captured like something really gorgeous about Miami. And for all the things I don't like it, there's like 10 things that I like about it. And I'm not one of those sticklers. I remember reading in film comment years ago about them casting Judith Ivy and Blythe Danner in Brighton Beach memoirs as these, yeah. two, these two wasps playing these two Jewish ladies. And I was like, they're just actors. The Jew Jewish people are doing fine in showbiz. It's okay. I, I didn't, that shit never bothers me because I just think, hey, man, it's Hollywood. You know, Hollywood is not like that. It should bother me. When I saw the name, it bothered me because I was mad at Nora Dunn for boycotting Dice Clay on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and, I, and um, so that bothered me. And then when I saw her performance, I was ready to hate it. Surprisingly, it really didn't bother me that much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I always think to myself, it is funny that they don't cast Latino actors in those kinds of things. But that's kind of the story of Hollywood. I, I never yeah. really sweat that too much. It's personal. getting better it's, now. It's good that, that Anna de Armas is a huge movie star now. And so if they need a Cuban woman, they can <laughs> just cast Anna de Armas. Yeah, she's, even bigger, just, she's, she's an even bigger star than Nora Dunn these days. They, well, you know, they can just cast the most beautiful woman in the world if they need a Cuban woman now. Absolutely. And Sonia Santiago used to be so great on Miami Vice as a character much yeah. like that character mm. that, and um that was one of the great shocks when i read the book knowing the movie really well when i started getting into the books is that like that's one of the most important and main characters in the series this character that is just like dead weight in the movie when, when i was really ready to hate it on my rewatch this time because you know when i watched when i saw that movie i started the movies you know in 1985 yeah. or 1990 rather yeah. and since then i did Generation in Your Magazine. I became very in touch with the Latino part of my culture. And, you know, I've carried that flag for a long time. So as soon as I saw that, I was bristling. I was like, I'm going to hate her. It didn't yeah. bother me at all. And it bothered me because it's Nora Dunn. It didn't bother me because it was a Caucasian actor. Should have been Kevin oh, Dunn. I meant, I meant it more that it was Nora Dunn than that it was a Caucasian oh, actor. Nora Dunn, she always is always annoying to me. Isn't she in She's that no Kevin Dunn. I'll say that much. <laughs> you... <laughs> Um, but that last shot with with Hoke, you know, and she kind of does like a little bit of an accent there. And I was like, yeah. that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. She definitely doesn't come out and do the like. Let me tell you something, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's funny is, you know, I've worked with a lot of, of, uh, of Cuban-American actors and Latino actors. And sometimes when they do an accent, they'll do a Hollywood accent. Yeah. of a latin person because that's what we've heard for so long i'm like that's not what you sound we don't sound like that dude. yeah well i'll say that too as like somebody who who had a thick southern accent when i was young and it was very humiliated by it and when i moved up north the people would make fun of me so i worked really hard to get rid of it that now it's it's not that you're can turn it on and off but when i get around my parents i say wash you know what i mean mm -hmm. like i i i change the way i sound it comes out when i'm in different contexts for sure 
and you are in control of your accent a little bit. And definitely when you're around different types, or especially up north, if I want to be disarming, if I'm sensing that someone's like a little angry in some context, in like a public context, I give it a like, oh, thank y'all so much. (laughs) That's really great. I really appreciate it from y'all. And it's like just the associations of like Southern niceness disarm people in a way that's like, funny you know like you do you do turn it on and off in some way uh, well i i mean i have a miami accent i'm convinced that all these kinds of things we're really like dolphins making clicking noises <laughs> <laughs> and we're just trying to make each other comfortable like, i mean you know harm. Yeah. that's the basic thing right yeah, the crickets. yeah exactly <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> um john what is your dessert pairing so uh, when we were talking about how it's funny that uh, the McGee movies or books have not been uh, adapted to screen too often, one reason I'm surprised is that David Mamet is clearly a gigantic fan of John yes. D. McDonald. I mean, I saw Meyer being played by young Ricky Jay. It seemed oh, like... Oh, for sure. Great like, casting. Yeah, it seemed like perfect for him. Uh, yeah. And just the whole idea of the con game and the one guy who's smarter than everyone else, just everything about it reads... Mammoth, even by the time he made Heist, uh, it feels like, like a Travis McGee story, you know, that's turned into a Heist movie. Um, so with that in mind, I'm going to go ahead and say The Spanish Prisoner would be what I would uh, recommend. Wow. Uh, kind of in kind of a McGee movie without McGee in it, you know, sort of yeah. Campbell Scott is sort of not a wizened, you know, guy who's going to use his smarts and his savvy to get the best of his opponents. Um, he's like one of those guys we were talking about, one of the dumb rich guys who gets conned into getting thrown yeah. off of a boat. Um, uh, but in the way that it, it's, I don't think it's set in Miami, but it's uh, definitely sort of a tropical location. Uh, it feels that it has that feeling of, you know, the way that you would con somebody by bringing them into a place like this where everything seems so leisurely and everything seems like just throw it all away. Just don't, no cares, no worries or anything like that. And how that can be dangerous because then you do fall into uh, the net of these people who actually do know, do, do have this organization. They do have this association and they just play these marks one after another. Although I would say the marks uh, are the the conspiracy in Darker Than Amber ultimately struck me as funny as, so we got this great plan. We get these rich guys to think this whore wants to fuck them. And then we get them on a boat and we throw them off the boat. <laughs> what, what's the rest of the plan? Then we take that money. <laughs> we don't get greedy. We don't tell them to bring $2 million on the boat with them. We take them for twenty or 30000 every time. <laughs> but these are millionaires, just, just right? Just walking oh, around yeah. money. Oh, just yeah. walking around money for these guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that would be my recommendation. Uh, Chris, What uh, what is yours? Mine is a movie that I saw a friend of mine when I was a kid had HBO. I never had cable growing up. And I saw this movie on HBO, which I believe it was made for HBO. And I completely forgot about its existence until Outlaw Vern did a review of it a couple years ago. And I was like, holy shit, that movie. Uh, It's directed by Mike Hodges. And it is called Florida Straits, starring the great Fred Ward, who plays a sort of... um, Travis McGee-esque, uh, like, uh, 
charter boat captain who's contracted by Raul Julia, who's a Cuban uh, refugee, I believe is a former uh, a, a revolutionary, to go get some treasure that Raul Julia has left behind in Cuba to get it's some it's somehow associated. It's been 30 years since I've seen the movie. <laughs> uh, somehow associated with like this is like revolutionary money treasure that he was forced to abandon. And Raul Julia contracts him and another guy, like a brash young hotshot, a real like um, you know, useless feather-haired type to round out the trio he's sort of like the preppy uh on it uh to go um to go to to go to cuba and get this money um and it is like an adventure film it's fred ward sort of splitting the difference between hoke mosley and travis mcgee and it's just like it's mike hodges who did get carter and uh you know and And also gordon and Flash Gordon and and Pulp and I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. So he made at least one good movie in there. And um, and it's it's very fun. It was a movie that I, like when I heard it brought up again, was like, oh, I loved that movie. Like I don't necessarily have concrete thoughts about that movie, but it like formed this like uh, sort of my my deep affection for Fred Ward, which is formed around that same age with Tremors and this movie and Miami Blues, and it's and Raul, and yeah, and it's Raul Julia like must be virtually simultaneous with Kiss of the Spider Woman, and it's like Raul Julia at like his mother fucking coolest, and for years this was like all I knew Raul Julia from was like this movie and the Street Fighter 2 movie when I was like a dumb kid, you know, like it's to me like uh, a quintessential Raul Julia, like oh, walking around in Adam's a white family. being awesome. That's true. I knew him from the Adams family too, but um, yeah, check it out. It's I've it's never called, heard of it. Oh really? It's, yeah. I don't know about this one. It's, it's on, I looked recently and it's on Blu-ray so you can see it now, but I didn't check if it was streaming anywhere. Oh, well, it's very cool. That sounds like a fascinating movie. I got to check that out. I love those kind of like heist or like there's some intrigue and with Cuba and all that. That'd be right up my alley. I got to look for Yeah, And I'm happy that Raul Julius come up twice on this episode. Yeah. And he's like a a political prisoner who's been exiled to Miami by Castro. So it ties in, it ties in perfectly with a lot of stuff we're talking about. Oh, totally trippy. I got to see that movie. Yeah. Great pick. And Bill, you have two uh, for us. Um, what 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 you got? Give me what you got. <laughs> I have two. It could really be four because I, I, I went a little crazy. I can't tell how much fun yeah. I had prepping for this episode. <laughs> That's, but, uh, I, we won four. Keep, keep my, them coming. Well, it's, you get two choices. You get a Spanish choice. You get a regular choice. And so if you... If <laughs> like you, Dracula and Spanish Dracula. Draculino. <laughs> um, you get Amigos, which is this 1985 movie. We talked a lot about the Mariel Boatlift because yeah. for some reason it looms large in Miami Blues. I mean, the Marielitos come up a lot, even if it had yeah. already been about four years before he submitted that manuscript. It came out in 85, but it was probably submitted in 84. But people were still dealing with it. For whatever reason, it seems to be prevalent. I thought it would be interesting to see things from the Marielitos' point of view. And Amigos is this very little scene movie from Miami from 1985, written and directed by Ivan Acosta. And he wrote the play El Supid, which you guys have probably heard of El Supid, which is directed by Leon Ichaso and, um, 
How do you uh, how do you how do you spell it? El Super, like the Super. Oh, okay, okay. You probably know that movie. Yeah. It was out from New Yorker Video yeah. for a long time, and mm-hmm. it's a it was a play, and they expanded it into a movie. Yeah. Great movie about the Super New York City who's Cuban, and his friends. And this is basically the same cast of that movie, pretty much. A guy named Reynaldo Marina and uh, uh, Armando Nasser and another guy who's not in that movie named Ruben Rabasa. And what it is about is these three guys that were best friends their whole lives. Three guys came to Miami. One guy stayed in Cuba. The guy that stayed in Cuba comes over in the Mario boat lift. They go get him. And it's the story of this guy acclimating to life in Miami. And it is a very broad comedy. Uh, and I mean, it's broad. Something about <laughs> Mary broad. It's broad. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And, uh, and some of it's a little corny and some of the scores a little corny and some of it's a little cringy. But overall, you could see that the filmmakers wanted to tell the story that we were all experiencing in Miami, which is like, you know what? That's not what everybody's saying. There's a lot of good people here. And the character kind of goes through that. He doesn't go out and get a job right away. By the time he tries to get a job, people are kind of looking down on this 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 kind of immigrant. He's feeling it from within the community. And you can see it for free on a thing called Snag Film. And yeah. um, uh, it's got subtitles. And uh, it's totally made in Miami. And it's a, it's a strange movie, but it's a nice opportunity for the Cuban community to kind of make a comment on, on itself. A lot of the humor... It's, it's the, the funny parts are, as I say, broad and sometimes cringy, but uh, overall you are seeing the community comment on itself, which Miami always has. You know, the work that gets out is always um, kind of general mainstream writers, but within the community, there's all these little comments and plays and shows and songs, and this is one that would be accessible if you want to see it from that point of view. The other book I thought would pair nicely with Miami Blues is 92 in the Shade by Tom McGuane. Oh, yes. I just yes. had the pleasure of interviewing McGuane for it. Oh, really? I went to I actually his, thought oh. of this one when I was thinking of things to pair with it. But So cool. I watched both his movies. I watched... Um, uh, oh my God, Rancho Deluxe, yeah, which he wrote and Frank Perry directed. And then I watched 92 in the Shade, which he wrote and directed. And, uh, and, and I had read the book. Um, and he lives up in Boca Grande or something in Florida. And I went and interviewed him for a DVD extra. My buddy, um, John Hertzberg, who you guys might know, he's, yeah. he's going to put out a DVD of Rancho Deluxe. So this yeah. is like for the extras. But that's, that's, a guy, that's about a guy who inherits a charter boat business um fishing business and he he has a rival and it's kind of about what happens in the rivalry and i think it's a good it's not really a fort lauderdale book it's a key west book but i felt like it was also incredibly well written because mcguane's such a stud um and i wanted to recommend something that was really really well written yeah that's that's a great choice Thank I you. actually, I thought about pairing it and then I was like, this is the keys and McGee hates it, the keys. I shouldn't I do know. this. Well, I did that for, for, um, <laughs> and then I picked Key Largo. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did those for Miami blues because I thought it's, it's a different look at Miami. Do you mind if I give yeah. you wrap it up with a quick one that goes with, uh, keep going. Yeah. Just a quick one that goes with, with, just um, say real quick, McGuay, that's awesome that you talk with McGuane. He wrote one of my all time favorite movies. The Missouri, Missouri breaks. breaks. Yeah. Well, he wanted to talk about the Missouri breaks and I, and, and he was, I've met a million people. He was one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. That's I, awesome. uh, I and, once uh, quoted Missouri breaks to John. <laughs> yeah. What did you uh, say? 
I was I was awakened. I don't remember saying this. I was a uh, awakened in a hotel. We were splitting a hotel room. Do you remember this, John? Uh, <laughs> Do you know where I'm going with this? <laughs> Did you say I just slit your throat or something? Like you know what the be the sound I said to John. You know what'll be the sound of wait you wait with the sound that'll wake you up? Me slitting your throat. <laughs> and I didn't. I don't remember this. I I sleepwalk and stuff. And John was like bothering me in my sleep. And another friend of ours who's now a a transplanted Floridian. And apparently I said this to John. And <laughs> like, I like you bother me in my sleep. I quote Missouri Breaks to you. Were you able to get some sleep after that, John? Yeah, I figured that's probably where we're going to end up anyway, if under Burgundy. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's inevitable. Well, what a way to go. If, if it's got to happen, it's a good friend. If anything, it encouraged me to really embrace my late period Marlon Brando a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> so he's a man, McGuane is something. So I thought I'd do that. Um, and then to pair with, um, as a nice dessert pairing for a, a Darker, darker than amber. I wanted to recommend a book called A Bloody Twist by Cristina Garcia Aguilera. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Car excuse me, Carolina Garcia Aguilera. Cristina Aguilera is the singer. Carolina Garcia Aguilera. <laughs> and uh, Carolina, you know these Lupe Solano mysteries? I love Bloody Waters. It's a great book. So, oh, you know, you know the Lupe books. That's so trippy. Yeah. I've never heard of them. I'm very excited. Huh? What it is is uh, there's this woman. Her name is uh, Carolina Garcia Aguilera. And she's a writer here in Miami. And she wanted to do some PI books. So she went, figured she'd do certain research. She'd get her PI license. She's kind of a like high society Cuban-American princess girl. And um, she got her PI license. She liked it so much. She was a PI for 20 years and didn't write a book Whoa. for 20 years. Yeah. And, um, but she's the coolest. And these books take place in kind of the opposite world from Travis. They're mostly written in the 90s, right? Some in the 2000s, mostly in the 90s. And uh, her hero, Lupe, who's a PI also, just like, like Carolina is. Um, Lupe Solano. Yeah. And she, and she lives in Coco Plum, which is like the Beverly Hills of Miami. Her dad has a 50-foot Hatteras aimed towards Cuba so that as soon as Castro dies, he can jump on his Hatteras and go get his <laughs> fortune back. And uh, there, she's a great writer. Talk about sexy. She writes not so much in the Lupe books, but in her other books. They're very body, very um, modern characters um very modern female characters a wonderful gifted writer and these would be like almost like a cuban american vi warshawski oh interesting um Good comparison yeah and you know i thought they would make great movies i, I guess that there really haven't been you know powerful actors that could bring that kind of stuff to screen that would fit that role but um they make great movies i think yeah, awesome. Anna Darmus would be a great. Lupe yeah, Solano. no, get Anna Darmus on the horn, <laughs> on the horn. She would be a great Lupe. Call the yeah. uh, get the uh, the the pure cinema guys right. They got the Ryan Johnson hookup. That's, that's right. <laughs> you know that's where I have heard about uh, Darker Than Amber. It was on oh, the Cinema Discoveries uh, episode. That seems like a film that would be very up their alley. <laughs> Um, Bill, thank you so much for doing this. Are there any any plugs? We didn't we didn't go into your resume or background much. You made the the uh, amazing uh, documentary on the Peter Bogdanovich film, One Day Since Yesterday. Uh, that's how we first came in contact with you. We love that film. We know you got something new you're working on. Is it still not discussable? Still not discussable. It's a big uh, music doc. Everyone you can imagine is in it. If you have a favorite musician, they're probably in it. 
Um, and it's going to be really cool. And speaking of Peter, it's, if this comes out before the end of April, it's Bogdanovich month on AMC, on TMC. So every Saturday night you get a, two Peter movies. Oh, awesome. Cause I know yeah. targets was just on targets was on. And then they have, they have, they're going to have St. Jack and Nickelodeon. They're going to, Oh, have, this weekend is paper moon. And, but well, by the time this airs, it'll probably be St. Jack and Nickelodeon. Yeah. Awesome. St. Jack is my Jack favorite. is the best. It's so good. And Nickelodeon is interesting too. Nickelodeon well, gets a bad rap. But the I, black and white one is great. The color one is Fakakta. Yeah. <laughs> but the black and white one's amazing. And that's just, it's the same movie, but it's just better in black and white. Some and Martin Kessler philosophy we're getting here. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, thank you so much for doing this, man. It's Thanks, always Bill. You're, you. You've been on the show before. We want you on again. Let's talk about the Burt Ward autobiography or something like that. <laughs> I got that. Anything, that knowledge. man. Man, you don't, you don't know how much fun I had reading these books and watching these movies and prepping to talk to you guys. It's a high point of my week. I'm in a desolate wasteland. I'm in freaking Miami. I need intellectuals like yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I am isolated out in the country country out here, and I am I'm losing my mind. You guys are literally the only people I've talked to all week. So it is nice, nice conversation. Other than my son, of course, who I talk to every day on the phone. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Thanks so much, man. Uh, take it easy. Thank you uh, to our Patreon subscribers. Hope you guys are all being safe out there and filling up your time with movies and books and, and good artwork that will keep you sane. Uh, we're going to be back later this month with an episode with uh, John Arminio, who we are a huge fan of. First time guest for us the nicest um, guy on the internet the nicest guy on the planet maybe i know nicest tm trademark nicest guy on the internet we're going to have our mini one and talking about the 1960s james bond movies so that's going to be a a whopper of an episode that i'm really looking forward to um thanks everybody and take it easy and be safe